Welcome back, everybody. We got another episode of The Strange Road for you. I'm your host, Mikey, and as always, the bro host, Bub. And of course, tonight, we have Stoner, no longer the loner, and Disbro in Master Control. Full force. Thank you to those guys for making everything there we are. sound good. Check them out there with the... Favorite shot of the show. <laughs> the best shot I of the entire shot. show. We've got the Master Control camera. Uh, Bub, how you doing tonight? Wonderful. It's a yeah, great day. A little chilly out today. I always give a weather report. I can't help it, but I feel like, you know, <laughs> I just have that, you know, I want the Denny's breakfast and I want to, you know, have brunch and go take a nap at three. I want to retire already. So, you know, yeah, I watch yeah, the weather. I, I want the brunch. And uh, yeah, it was a nice little, little chilly though. It was kind of great. Yeah. Took the dog for a walk. Feels like spring. That's it's so weird. Yeah, it yeah. just keeps flip-flopping back and forth, which usually here, it's like, I'm it kind of feels like spring, and then it's right to, like, burning you all day, yep. every day of summer. So Absolutely. I'll take it. I'll take what I can get of, like, cool and comfortable for a little while, leave the windows open, not you know, too humid. Yeah. Humidity, that's where it kills me. Sweet Jesus, yeah. But anyways, guys, awesome show Game for you on. tonight. Thank you, everybody who's listening and watching. We appreciate uh, it. You guys can always find us at The Strange Road. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Check out The Strange Road Hitchhikers Facebook group. Absolutely. And share this video, share this episode. If you guys like what you see, like what you hear, spread the word. We're always trying to see who else we can reach out there in the world with The Strange. Yeah. And so if you guys like us, uh, send us a five-star review, like the video subscribe uh and you know we are trying to put out top quality content for you guys so, every time and we really really appreciate the hell out of each and every one of you uh and tonight we have a pretty awesome guest i feel like we've Another already had kind of a guest. podcast just with the pre pre-show chat <laughs> yeah, i'm already we like <laughs> we're fired up we're fired you know up. i try to start the show off empty so i try not to read much twitter <laughs> or any news or headlines or anything strange coming out i just bookmark them and, and keep them um so that way when i'm on i can kind of like have that all right fill me up fill me up all right, okay yep. it's too much yep i can't think anymore you've blown my mind and in the I, we were talking 15, 20 minutes already. I was like, oh, yeah. God, might have to hit the pause button because I'm already like, I want to just take notes. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love conversations like that. So I'm super excited. Yeah, we're stoked. And hey, let's get right into it. Dive in. We have a special guest tonight, everybody. Dennis Stone. He's the president of America Stonehenge, which is a 4,000-year-old archaeological site in Salem, New Hampshire. Okay. Used to be called Mystery Hill. That's when I heard about it when I was Named a kid. Named the location. Yes. Uh, early days of the internet, I remember coming across sites like Gunji Wap, Mystery Hill, and it's always been fascinating. There's a lot of different shows on, whether it's history, uh, a lot of shows have covered this place. A yeah. lot of people like uh, the the group, which we love, Atlas, Atlas Obscura, yeah. has done a piece, who did a piece uh, with our friend Jim Bowser in the Temple of Tolerance. Oh, yeah. So those guys are great. And... and uh, and there's, uh, I think the, the secrets out. I think worldwide about America's Stonehenge now. It's definitely uh, gaining in popularity. A lot of people visit this place every word year. Word of mouth. And so I want to bring in our guest, Dennis Stone. Dennis, how the heck are you, man? Well, I'm doing great. Thank you, uh, Bob and uh, Mikey. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, doing pretty good. We, 
Yeah, uh, just recovering from a vacation right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and we'll get into that because you went to some. Uh, you, you were in our home state, and we'll definitely get into that. Uh, but first, I'd love Good to kind of get to know you, Dennis. Uh, you, uh, how did you come across America Stonehenge? And give us a little bit of backstory about yourself and and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so uh, it's been a, in my family uh, going back into the 1950s. Um, I'm, uh, I was born in 1954, so I'm, I guess that makes me 29 today. You know? but, <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, I was about a year and a half old, and my dad was an AT&T Bell Labs engineer. His name was Robert Stone, and just prior to that, he had been in the Coast Guard, and he spent a lot of time up in Labrador, not far from where the Vikings landed. I always had an interest in in the ancient past, Native Americans and, you know, uh, Columbus, the Vikings, that kind of thing. Uh, and on a radio show back in 1955 on a Friday night in the summer, uh, it was the biggest radio station in New England out of Boston. And the show was called Yankee Yarns. And he was just listening to it like he did every Friday night. And he used to listen to it up in Labrador on the skip wave at night. You know, so it's 10.30 a.m. on your dial and you could pick it up at night. Uh, and this particular night... Uh, the subject was all about a place we call America Stonehenge today, and he had never heard of it. And the uh, the host, actually, of the show was Alton Hall Blackington, a na uh, native of Maine. Uh, and he um, had already done two prior shows back in 1949, and I just discovered that recently. I got all the paperwork on that. So he had an interest in this going back into the 1940s. But my dad had never heard of it again until that evening. So 7.30 at night. Uh, on a Friday night, the whole show was about this site, and he lived only seven miles from this site. And my mom, my dad, n nothing about the site whatsoever. Uh, that week, he was at a barber shop having his hair done, and he picked up a magazine waiting for his turn. And in this magazine, he's flipping through it, and there's a whole feature with photographs of the same site. Oh, and boy. he said to the and it was quite shocked by that, plus the coincidence, you know, I mean, twice in a week, right? And he said to the to the uh, barber, Warren Haywood, he said, hey, can I uh, have this magazine? And Warren was a barber and the owner of the shop. He goes, well, how old is that? He goes, well, it's three years old. It's been, my dad goes, it's been sitting here for three years. It's 1952. And the name of the magazine was New Hampshire Profiles. It's no longer in print, but uh, the whole story and all the photographs all about the site, that just really pretty much clinched it for my dad. So he took it home that weekend at my aunt and uncle's house up in that same town, about seven miles from the place, a town called Derry, New Hampshire. That's where Alan Shepard, the astronauts from, and Robert Frost were there. And anyway, uh, my grandfather had Robert Frost for a teacher. But anyway, they're uh, passing this magazine around on a Friday, on a Saturday night. Everybody's playing cards at my aunt and uncle's. And he passed it around. There were about 10 people, as I mentioned, and nobody knew what it was until it got to my aunt and uncle, my mom's uh, sister and her brother-in-law. And uh, they looked at it and said, wait a minute, we were there in the 1930s. We used to bicycle down here when they were dating back in the mid-30s. So the next question for my dad is, can you find a place? So that Sunday morning, the four of them drove around this area. It was not open to the public. There were no road signs. There was no Google Earth, you know, nothing, or Google Maps, I should say. And uh, they drove around for a while. Finally, my aunt and uncle spotted an old dirt road that looked familiar to them from 20 years prior. So they parked the car, they walked up about a half a mile, and there was a site. Man, it was surrounded by a big chain link fence that's still there today. It was put up by the first researcher back in the 1930s. And he actually climbed under the fence. The rest of them stayed outside. And that fence surrounds the main, what we call the main site, about one acre where most of the structures, but not all are located. Barbed wire on top, you know, and hmm. so... 
you can't really climb over it, so he climbed under it, uh, <laughs> trespassing. He's trespassing. And, uh, and the rest of them waited around outside for quite a while. You know, they were trespassing, too. Uh, finally, he came out after probably, you know, 45 minutes to an hour or whatever, and they're, like, waiting for him. And, and they said, what do you think? Because this place is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. It's, it's astonishing, all the stonework, the structures and everything. And uh, and so the next one of the things he mentioned in my mind, he goes something like he'd like to get involved with the research as if he didn't have enough to do. You know, he, uh, we had my sister on the way. They just built the house. They actually built it themselves. He was a new AT&T engineer and Bell Labs engineer. And uh, so uh, she said, I think you got rocks in your head. My mom said, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think he did, you know, because after that, he eventually met uh, the owner of the site and. And before the show, you mentioned the Upton Chamber, you know, mm-hmm. and that was actually owned by the same guy, the hmm. same family that owned our site, Malcolm Pearson. Wow. And uh, and that's how Malcolm got involved with it. Yeah. So Malcolm, 100, almost 100 years ago, when he was 16 years old, down in Upton, Massachusetts, the family bought this house and the owner told Malcolm, hey, young man, there's a, uh, I think he's called it a cellar, like a root cellar or a yeah. cellar hole out back or stuff like that. So uh, Malcolm got quite curious as a 16-year-old when he went back and he saw that chamber, which is a really an amazing structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have seen others in New England like that. I've seen others like that in Europe. Like I've been into Newgrange and the interior is very similar. But in any event, uh, that went Malcolm's uh, interest. And he died about 11 years ago, almost 100 years old. And that remained with wow. him for his entire life, that interest. So my dad and Malcolm, they had to work out a deal over the next three years from 1955 to 1958. And my dad had, in the meantime, started buying the property where the parking lot, the visitor center is. And Malcolm still controlled the 20 acres where most of the structures are located on top of the hill. Um, And when we opened up in 1958, it was on the summer solstice, just another coincidence. We didn't know anything about the astronomical alignments. And it actually opened, you remember Mystery Hill, it actually opened up as the stone ruins in New Hampshire. And I only found that out a few years ago after my dad, I'm going through all the papers, thousands wow. of pages, and it's, it was incorporated as stone ruins in New Hampshire. And um, so that's the original name. And then it became Mystery Hill Caves in 1959. And in 1963, uh, because the word caves denoted natural chambers, not man-made, the word caves was dropped. It became Mystery Hill in 1963. And in 1982, I'm, I'm starting to, I was flying at the time when my first airlines, I was in Vermont, actually. And that's when they changed the name to American Stonehenge. But 1959, the second year we opened, Saturday evening posted a whole feature on the site. And the, the gentleman that wrote the article referred to our place as the Stonehenge of America. So it was kind of a nickname, you know. Yeah. And he said that not because of the astronomy, but because of the big stone slabs. Mm-hmm. There are about 50,000 megalithic sites in Western Europe, Stonehenge being the most famous, and I think that's the only one he knew about, or yeah. at least everybody knew about. So he used that. The astronomy at our site did not start until 1965. So there's a lot of funny coincidences, you know, and things like that that have happened over the year. But I was 18 months old uh, when they first saw the site. Man, when we opened it up, I was four years old. And this year, we're going to have a 65th anniversary being open to the public. We'll have a cake, I think, on the summer wow. solstice which is coming up in about nine days, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. we'll have to get the cake made. Uh, and next year we have uh, an anniversary because uh, my dad had, didn't have enough to do with everything and trying to, you know, run the place and work at AT&T and everything. Uh, 
Um, he actually started a nonprofit group called New England Antiquities Research Association. He started it in our basement in 1964, and uh, it will be the 60th anniversary of that next year. And uh, that's a group that's a nonprofit group uh, to research these structures. And back in those days, they probably knew of about maybe, I'm going to say, probably under 100 structures. By 1968, I just read one of the journals from there, and they mentioned 200 structures. Today, the number is about 800 sites from Quebec, Ontario, uh, going down towards Virginia. Uh, these structure can be a single structure or it can be a multiple structure in a, in a location. But our site's about 106 acres, and it's the most compact. It's kind of like the Reader's Digest of a lot of these sites. Everything that you see at a lot of these sites around the Northeast is kind of compressed on this one piece of land. And we're starting to become more aware of that. You know, even after my dad died in 09, we're becoming more aware that our site has a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you go to New York on the Hudson River, there's about 500 sites. Dutchess County, Putnam County, and, um, and Westchester. And the static, you might see a structure or two or three, and then you have to go down the road a quarter mile, see another structure, that kind of thing spread out over the landscape. But everything's compressed at our site. It makes it a little different, that case. Gunjiwamp might be the next one that's kind of like, you mentioned mm-hmm. Gunjiwamp before the show. Because that site was written about in 1654. John Pynchon wrote to Governor Winthrop saying, what is it, 369 years ago, asking the question. Yeah. And by the way, they did do a test on that site, both carbon dating and optically stimulated luminescence. And they seem to be, again, pre-colonial, uh, prehistoric site. Uh, our site and Gunjiwamp and some of the other sites, too. Wow. So I, my, my thing is I had to uh, I had to kind of grow up with a place, you know, and uh, I had a sister. She's passed away. About uh, 11 years ago, she passed away. She was, as a kid, involved with the site. My mom was involved with it. But we all, but my parents both had jobs, too, on the side, as I mentioned. And I also had a job, and my wife, too. She kind of runs the place. And she was uh, working for Chrysler Financial and TRW. She had a, she had a, bachelor, a master's degree uh, back in the 80s, and she had some pretty nice jobs. But in 1993, she decided to give up the corporate life and just run our business, you know, and spend a mm. really nice job at it all That's these years, about, about 30, 30 years. Yeah. So it's really a family. And I have a granddaughter now, so fourth generation now with a site. It is a state historic site. Uh, 1971, they designated it as a state historic site for New Hampshire. So we're listed on that. We don't have any federal recognition, you know, like the National Register of Historic Places or the uh, United Nations World Heritage uh, classification, UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, perhaps that will happen someday. But the sites are very controversial, you know. Nobody's you talk to mainstream, and they uh, they tend to think it was built by a farmer, you know, because there's about 800 of these sites across. But you think that somebody would know which farmers built these things and why would they build something like this, you know? So. Right. Um, so that's my, that's how I grew up. You know, my last name is Stone, so it's probably preordained. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, that I don't is. Get much I, choice of that. I was going to ask I, I you about yeah. that. <laughs> how, how, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I stole your thunder. <laughs> yeah. How many, how many visitors a year or how many visitors a month do you know? Like, I'm always interested in numbers on a certain level, but, you know, what is the kind of buzz level to it? Has it picked up? Has it over the years. Yeah, it does. It does kind of go up and down. You know, you get on a show like a History Channel show, you know, you'll sure. see it go up. And then, uh, and then it might level. I think the interest has picked up, you know. My wife's been doing a good job marketing and on social media and everything. And I think the more shows like your show right. uh, make people more aware of the site, you know, and they can right. come up, visit. They can make up their own opinion what they think the site is. We don't try to uh, tell people who built it. We really don't know. We yeah. don't try to persuade people. 
Well, we do tell them what we have for 12-carbon dating, starting in 1967, uh, what we have for the optically stimulated luminescence dating. Also, um, the astronomical alignments were surveyed from 73 to 1977, and that winter, going into 78, the data was sent to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, we have the name, I think it was Rosenbaum. I have to look the name up again. We have the name of the person that did the analysis. And what they said uh, in the spring of 78, uh, the reason it took five years to survey is we kind of paid this professional surveyor, Beverly Pearson Associates, and it was actually the son, Charlie Pearson. He's just retired from survey after all these years. His dad was a president, I believe, of the New England Survey Association. And they're a local survey and engineering group. We uh, wanted to hire somebody very professional to go up and uh, survey the walls and the alignments. Um, and it, we had to pay as we kind of went. So by 77, we did phase A. We didn't do the 110 acres. We did about 15 or 16 acres, sure. which is on that di diorama right there, as a matter of fact. Right. Uh, and what they said at Harvard is uh, if these were used for astronomical purposes, they would work about 1800 BC, plus or minus a couple hundred years, due to the obligate of the Earth. The Earth axis tilts. It's a, about a 41,000 year cycle. You have a processional cycle, 25,920 years, but this is actually a tilt. So the alignments will be off a little today due to the Earth's tilt. And that agreed with our 1971, one of our 12 carbon datings. That was the 4,000-year-old date. It was actually uh, 1800 BC plus or minus. It was the same date as the astronomical alignments of the world. They seem to support each other. Maybe in the future we'll find there's a little bit of issues with that. But I, that's been, you know, 50 years that we get the results back, you know, or uh, 45 years we get the results back. So that was the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in 1978. So we do think the site's an ancient, you know, prehistoric site. Our thought is because of the amount of artifacts found on the site, we have found stone tools, utensils, possibly weapons on the site. We have them on display. But it was not a place of living, we don't think. It's probably a place of ceremony, maybe a place of burial. Perhaps people got married there. Maybe it was a pilgrimage place. You know, and I I was just out at some of the mounds, as you mentioned on in the intro, and uh some of those sites sound quite similar to ours. Not a place where people live. You don't find the middens, the trash. They were kept kind of clean, and people visited them. And they probably lived, some might have lived nearby. Some may have traveled a distance, and they probably lived in Hydewood or Bach, something that's perishable. And that makes it kind of harder to discover their locations. When we were in um, Ohio last week, we uh, met an archaeologist and actually a one of the National Park people that are actually looking for the domicile sites, and they actually were doing shovel test pits at the site mound, and she gave us a full-blown explanation of what they're doing, and then we went to another mound, maybe the uh, Hovenweep, uh, uh, what was it, a uh, mound group, and there was a person there, we took, oh, the Ho Ho uh, sorry, Hovenweep Cultural Center, and we had a mm -hmm. park ranger give us a tour, and they said the same thing. They were doing survey work there. They're looking for where the people live, Mm -hmm. And they, that's something they're doing because they never really discovered, you know, some of their habitat right. places. Right. So that's what we need to do at our site, too. The problem is I think some of the neighborhood is sitting on top of where the people lived off the main site, probably off the main hill, you know. Right. Um, so the research continues here, you know. Well, it sounds like you guys are not sitting still. It sounds like over the years no. you've, <laughs> you've been actively trying to at least figure out this mystery. I mean, Mystery Hill being its one of its first names. 
Uh, you know, going back to some of the first folks that came across the before your family inherited, what's some of the history before your father purchased the property and, and, and what did they come up with and find? And did they think it was ancient? So uh, actually, I mentioned uh, Malcolm Pearson, and he's the one that actually inherited the site in 1950. His folks owned the Upton Chamber. But he inherited that from the first researcher, William Goodwin of Hartford, Connecticut. Malcolm was kind of like his right-hand man because Malcolm was quite young at the time. And Malcolm would actually drive Goodwin around. Uh, he'd actually pick him up, bring him up to maybe the Upton Chamber, maybe a, the Hopkinton Chamber, which is where the Boston Marathon starts. There's a hmm. chamber there. Uh, a couple other towns in that That's vicinity. And they got involved. Right. <laughs> right at the yeah, Marathon, yeah. So, uh, but, yeah, so uh, Malcolm... Um, he was a professional photographer. You couldn't ask for anybody better because when he first came to the site on 1936, he introduced Goodwin to the site, basically, and they came up. He photographed right away. And we still have thousands of photographs. Some of them are negatives that have never been turned into prints, and we may do that. We have glass slides. We have the plastic slides from Kodak. We also have the prints. But he also photographed sites all over the Northeast. And he actually uh, took the first aerial photographs of our sites starting around 1939, 1938. He loved to fly. You know, I did too. But he would go up in a plane back then. He would hire a guy. And uh, they actually flew up into Maine to see another site up there. He loved it. Any excuse he could do. And that was a time, too, around uh, just before World War II and into World War II where gas rationing. Uh, became an issue. So uh, they had to scrape the money together and uh, even he hired the guy to fly him up. He thought it was better than driving. Maybe maybe they could get, you know, ab gas instead of gas-free car. I'm not sure, but it's in the book because uh, the first guy that did research was William Goodwin. And Goodwin was of Hartford. He was a very interesting gentleman. His first cousin was J.P. Morgan. Uh, so they're the same family. Okay. Goodwin, uh, when he was young, he went to St. Paul's in New Hampshire the uh, prep school, he went to Yale, and he ended up um, getting his first job in Kansas in a bank, and then he moved uh, out to Seattle, and he worked uh, in administration for a uh, uh, mercantile company for a while, and then his family was big on insurance, Hartford, Connecticut, at the insurance capital, where his family owned, I think it was Phoenix and Aetna, I think it was. But he uh, got involved with insurance once he made it to the West Coast. His family set him up as a special agent in Seattle. And he got the office up and running, and he went up to the Yukon and panned for gold for a while, came back. The office was running so well, they promoted him getting his absence. And uh, he moved to, moved to San Francisco, and he married his wife just before moving to Seattle, Mary Hood. And then uh, he lived in San Francisco. He moves. Uh, they moved him to Columbus, Ohio. Your neck of the woods. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the interesting thing about Goodwin, now he left San Francisco just uh, before the bad earthquake that occurred out there right. in 1906. That's, he left yeah. then to go to Columbus. He was in Columbus for 15 years. He missed all that devastation. I can't imagine what type of uh, insurance issues there would be, you know, right. if he wasn't. He got out of there. <laughs> While he was in uh, Columbus, he was lucky. When he was in Columbus, he actually would go out on his days off and start mapping some of the, the estimate. And I heard this from the gentleman at the um, Newark Mound, one of the gentlemen that worked there the other day. And he, the number came up again, about 10,000 mounds, they estimate, in your state yeah. of Ohio. And that's just simply amazing. I tell our visitors, I've been telling them that for decades because I heard about it in the 90s, I think, the numbers, you know, maybe 5,000 in Indiana. And when he mentioned that again, I said, thank God I got the right number. You know, you hate to tell people the wrong story. I sure. really don't like that. Yeah. Sure. I mean, 
Well, he would go out and map some of these for the highway department. He did it for 15 years, you know, and that's probably still in the archives. He would actually locate it on the road and everything what the structure was. Yep. <clears throat> Moved back to Hartford, uh, 1931, he retired, and he was involved with the uh, the Wordsworth Anatheum, a museum in, um, in uh, Hartford. And he and um, J.P. Morgan, before Morgan died in 1913, put together early American furniture. He learned about... Uh, uh, I guess it was antique furniture while he was living in your state. And he took that knowledge back and he actually would buy stuff and sell stuff and he would give appraisals and all of that. That was one of his things he loved to do. But with J.P. Morgan, they put together. And recently I read and somewhere it came up and I said, that's the collection. It's still there today. Hmm. But uh, Goodwin died in 1950. He wrote four books. He spent a lot of time down in um, Jamaica. His doctor told him to go there for his health. I guess that's not bad advice, you know. He spent uh, <laughs> every winter wonderful. down there. Yeah, Jamaica. <laughs> yeah, and he would he wrote three books, uh, four books, and one of them was all about the lore of gold. He wrote about where Columbus landed on his four voyages, <clears throat> and he was really really involved with research of where Columbus landed. He was interested in all that. And when he came back uh, in 1936, he heard about this site from a gentleman named uh, Olaf Strandwell who was actually on the West Coast and lived in Seattle, and he met him, I guess, and he took a trip out there. After all these years, he had left Seattle. He went back, and he's talking to him, and he's talking about these sites on the East Coast. <laughs> so when Goodwin returned home, he met up with, uh, eventually, with Malcolm Pearson, and then he saw the Hopton site, uh, Acton site, uh, the Upton site, and then Malcolm goes, there's a site in North Salem, New Hampshire, you've got to visit. And the following week, they all came up. Yeah, I think three or four people, they had piled into the car, and they came up, and they saw this site, and they were just blown away by it. And Goodwin actually, uh, we have on a wall in our museum, like a poster with Goodwin on it, and it has what he said about the site. And I can't repeat it. I can't repeat because I can't remember all the words, but it was so elegant. <laughs> he was astonished. He was so astonished by the site, and he said it so nicely, you know, like he's never seen anything like it. And he did a lot of traveling. He was well-traveled. He was well-versed, well-written. He did get a lot of um, a lot of lap later on because the methodology in the 30s for digging is not what it is today. Right, you know, we made sure. a meter square, so they did it differently back then. So he was a man of his time. They did the best they could at the time. They didn't have carbon dating and all the modern techniques we have today. But um, you know, so his idea was that the site was built by Irish monks. At first, he thought it was a Viking site. In fact, one of his books was called "The Truth About Leif Erikson." That book came out oh, wow. uh, in the early 40s. And he thought they landed in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on the Piscataqua River, I think is where he thought that perhaps is where, you know, Vinland was, you know. But he thought when he saw the site, he goes, you know, maybe the Vikings were so covered with debris. Like my dad came in and had already been clean. A lot of it had been cleaned by the 1950s. A lot of debris, a lot of brush, trees, you know, a little bit harder to see the site. There was no chain link fence around it. There was nothing, you know, it was just a, a site in ruins, basically. Mm -hmm. But as they started working in 1937, he bought the land from um, a gentleman, um, I'm trying to think of the guy's name offhand, but uh, I'll think of it in a minute. But he bought the land and he bought 20 acres and he put up a chain link fence around the site, as we mentioned earlier, to protect it, put barbed wire facing inward. He didn't want people going in there taking artifacts out. And they kept it locked up during those days to keep it protected. And that chain link fence is still there today. It still looks like new. You know, mm -hmm. I've painted it a few times, but it's it's actually served its purpose very well. Um, <clears throat> but um, so he thought the Irish monks, after he uncovered the site, because you know the Vikings lived in long houses, sword houses. Yeah, these are big stone structures with gigantic stone roofs. This really doesn't look like 
what he was aware of from the Vikings, you know. Uh, so his, his uh, theory kind of changed. It kind of morphed into the Irish called Imant, preceding the Vikings into the New World, being chased out of Europe, out of Iceland, out of Greenland, <clears throat> into uh, Canada, and then down into, into New England was basically his theory. In fact, I'm just finishing up his book. I read it 50 years ago in the 70s, and I'm rereading it now, <clears throat> you know, all these years wow. later. It's kind of interesting. You pick up more the second time you read sure. it. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, when he died, he will, he will decide to milk him. And then Malcolm's the gentleman that my dad dealt with, you know. Um, so, but uh, before Goodwin, and uh, he bought it from Fred Dustin, the Dustin family. And the Dustin family, I don't know if you ever heard of Hannah Dustin. She's very famous in New England. She was kidnapped by the Native yeah. Americans. Oh. Brought to Conk. It's, yeah, one of these things. It was a very, very interesting story, but it's that family. In New England, you'd probably call, oh, yeah, you know, you'd hear the name. Sure. That's part of the family. Sure. And that family actually was related to the family of the Patties. Yeah, you might have heard of the Patty during one of the, uh, perhaps when you when you were online looking at us years ago, the Patty family, they were actually shoemakers. And uh, there were five generations from England originally. And uh, they're the ones that are given credit for building the site. You know, mm. oh, it's built by the patty. They're actually shoemakers, and they call them farmers. He had some domesticated animals. He had uh, two sons. People say, oh, Patty, there's six husky sons built the site. He had nine daughters, actually. But he had, and he had two sons. One son died, 17 going on 18 in Boston. For some reason, 40 miles south of here, he was in Boston, and he died down there. You know, did he get run over by a horse? Something else happened? We don't know. Right. But he never had six husky sons. I don't know if the daughters were husky or, you know, rugged. I but that's that's the whole story you hear still today sometimes by some of the uh, debunkers. Uh, oh yeah, that farmer Patty. Well, he was really yeah. a shoemaker. He was a road surveyor. He took in the town paupers. We have I have a handwritten book in 1937. The last year that he did that, he put a bid in. His kids had already moved away. Most of his daughters and everything had moved away, starting in 1831. And he had these. Uh, these poor people, I guess, so the paupers, they call them, would actually stay with him. And he had up to 11 in that house with he and his wife taking care of him. And one year he made $360-something. So besides shoemaking, road survey work, he was a tax collector for the town of Salem for three years. He got involved with the town paupers. By 1837, and I had that book, um, my dad had it in his collection. It's actually, uh, it's probably something the town would love to have. You know, it's it's all handwritten. And oh, everybody wow. put the bid in. It's incredible. It's yeah, I was like, wow, and I gotta be careful touching it. Um, but in 1838, Patty doesn't do that anymore. Um, and that's when we think the Underground Railway. Uh Wilbur Cypret, uh, in your state, Cincinnati has a Freedom Center. Um, I would assume our stuff is in there because it's in the Wilbur Cypret's book, written in 1930s, Underground of Ohio, Massachusetts, New York. We're in the Massachusetts. And so the site was refused for the Underground Railway, trying to help slaves escape to Canada. You know, it was uh, it was a station. Patty was a conductor, I guess you'd call it. It would be a Mr. Poor, a Mr. Hussey. Usually it kept very quietly, too. You don't want to have a paper trail because it was against the law to do mm -hmm. this. But he was doing it until he died, uh, probably from 38 up to the time he passed in 1849. Probably that window there is when they took the under. So Mr. Poor, Mr. Hussey, or uh, Mr. Donald would come up with a horse named Nelly, and it would bring about 20 miles in the course of the evening up to New Hampshire. He'd hear a knock, and whoever the gentleman was would actually have time to return and have coffee in Shawshine Village, Massachusetts, again, about 20 miles south. So there's a lot of history tied in with the site, you know. Uh, there's a layering of time period, you know, people used the site uh, in the historic time. 
And unfortunately, the Paddies, I think it was his son or grandson that actually had the quarrymen come in. And we think today about a third of the site's mission. Hmm. They were interested in stone used for local building projects. And it's all downhill from the site. Yep. And so the estimates vary, you know, anywhere from like a third to a half right. of the site's mission. You get to see the modern drill mark. You might have heard that in the story when you mm-hmm. heard about us. So that was kind of a negative thing. Uh Patty uh, was a common. He, he, you hear that all it is over. So, we talked to Mike Luma yeah. about that of just sites where they literally yeah. just blow it up, take all the stones, and oh, they're like, get a good picture. Yeah. We're about to strap, yeah. you know, they yeah. want yeah. to photograph sticks it, of dynamites yeah. to this and, then and blow it up. Take all the stone and yeah, and use it for Army Corps of Engineering projects back in the day. Repurpose it all materials, um, yeah, you know, highways and so forth. With in Ohio, we had a huge, yeah. giant, like eighty foot limestone encased pyramid essentially out by i-70 yeah and they blew that whole thing up and built the road used all that stone right as you pass columbus off to your left there should be right is off to your yeah would be off to your left going out to zanesville and they used it for the foundation of one of the major exit ramps off of i-70 and that wasn't that long ago like you said earlier there was ten thousand sites here in ohio we have about a thousand left and that is amazing of these uh like you said the archaeology back then wasn't what it you know what it is now and and a lot of these folks were dug they would dig them up but never rebuild them uh you know the serpent mounds actually a reconstruction from uh the putnam days in the yeah, 1880s yeah. when putnam in the harvard museum and uh, which all those artifacts are in the peabody museum of harvard but uh you know they came out and basically leveled the whole thing dug right. it all up and what you see now Even is, see is his interpretation yeah. and there's horns off the back of the head of the serpent that are missing from earlier drawings from like the 1820s and earlier, which our friend Jeffrey Wilson recently found even older maps when he's doing an update of the ancient monuments of the Mississippi Valley updated volume where he's found these incredible old maps that Squire and Davis didn't draw, that they right. used the source maps to basically what you see in ancient monuments is actually much older versions were based yeah. off of those. They just made a compilation of what yeah. had been done so, in the groundwork that you had know, been laid and then kind of dubbed it, yeah. hey, we did all this and mm-hmm. it was really wasn't their work. So yeah. yeah, he's found a lot of the originals to that that nobody knows or knew existed. And but we see reconstructions here in Ohio and I know – Sometimes, you know, people do their best to reconstruct them. And I believe William Goodwin, he was a part of uh, some of the trying to update them, trying to rebuild some of the spots where he felt were were in ruin. Um, and, and, and I know here in Ohio as well, that's where a lot of con- the criticism of some of these places come from is when folks are reconstructing, oh, well, you know, th- this site was built by William Goodwin in, or right. these oh, folks yeah, that yeah. – and, and that becomes yeah. kind of a hot button point to say this isn't an ancient site. Look, this guy reconstructed D- – what do you find about some of the controversy with William Goodwin and, and have you seen that? Because those chambers don't look like a recon. Some of that stuff was there no. No. already, correct? The Oracle Chamber is pretty much uh, pristine, if you will. Um, the uh, lintel stone over the entrance is missing and we haven't found it yet. Uh, the thing we mentioned about the photographs was not only uh, Malcolm taking photographs when we first got there with Goodwin in 36 before Goodwin bought the land, okay. but in 37 and on, 
However, uh, 1939, the Havel Gazette in a Boston paper uh, took photographs of the site. We have those. And there's a gentleman uh, in the Havel Gazette, Reverend Ward, standing at the bottom of the site inside the chain link fence when you first enter it, looking at over the whole site in the background. Um, and then we have four photographs from 1920, about 20 Three years ago, about 2000, a woman came up with her husband from Florida, and they gave us these photographs from 1920. They're numbered. They have black ink and blue ink on the backside, and they're numbered sequentially. Wow. And they were taken in 1920. I mean, that's 16 years before Goodwin ever knew about this right. site. And then we have two photographs, we think, from 1900. They're both in – those two are in Goodwin's book, which came out in 1946. So we can kind of when that, no, you made an excellent point. You know, that's one of the criticisms I was talking to my wife about that, where you're looking at your mounds out there, because like you said, so many of them have been destroyed. And the ones you look at today, a number of them have like the serpent mound been partially restored. They've been dug into and but a couple of them, like we're at the Hoven Wheat Cultural Center. When I asked the, uh, the National Park guide, I said, um, did this site somehow escape? The uh, plow, you know, the plowing activity mm -hmm. was. And she says, actually, yeah, that was part of it. She goes, actually, what you see a lot of this around, you're looking around here, has been uh, interpretive restoration and construction. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm like, oh, I thought maybe part of it was original. I thought, thank God they didn't destroy this particular one, but that one even suffered too. Yep. Um, and I think during World War One, there was a general, was it General Sherman or somebody, was not only at the the uh, the Hoven, uh, the Hopewell Cultural Mound, but he was he was also at the uh, Newark Mound, I think, and he had the encampments for training. Yeah, their soldiers right right on top of some of these mounds. Yeah, yeah. I mean Ohio's so big, it's a shame city. they couldn't have done it down the road a mile or two. Yeah, you know? and yeah. the yeah. army base is still right down the road from Mound City, and so that's the Mound City. Yeah, it's right there that's across amazing. the road. The army site. The, the modern yeah. day army base and training facility yeah. Yeah. is still right there, there, but it used to yeah. be inside Mound City's embankment walls oh. where they had gone in. And the mounds itself, the conical mounds, some of those are reconstructed, but they knew where yeah. they were and yeah. they, they built them back up That's really the best wild. they could once yeah. the army corps event, the, the, and the army moved across the street. Then they came in and reconstructed, and now it's the Mound City, which is a really, really famous. I mean, it, it looks like a mystical, ancient, with multiple uh, conical mounds and half-moon henges, and it's all in one spot. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, you mentioned the Newark Mound uh, and the Great Circle and, and being able to see it, you know, flying above it because oh, yeah. it's, it's the size of the, the base of the pyramid. And so you have a Huge. lot of these, uh, they used to have state fairs inside there. Some of the earliest sketches yeah, yeah. of the Newark yeah. uh, was the first Ohio State Fair was inside the Great Circle. It just always makes me think that, you know, even though, like, there's not mounds everywhere, but just, like, the, the ground you're walking over, the places that we're stepping on that, you know, throughout history, who's been there, what has occurred there. But, you know, how we do inadvertently sometimes, maybe even at those times— just not on the awareness level of yeah. what you're on top of as you're having a picnic during this fair or eating a corn dog or whatever it is, you know, like mm. I can imagine mm. just being a little kid just sitting up on this mound, like thinking this is the greatest fair ever. And look at this wonderful obstacle yep. course, like, you know, the interpretation of that and just the lack of awareness at the time and how we've discussed of, you know, the destruction and, you know, kind of 
just decimation. And it's happening in New England. It happened. It happened in Ohio. It happened in Indiana. It just seems like in America, for whatever reason, you know, you go to Mexico, you go to Peru, you go to Europe, and they have their sites intact. Our right. sites are not the percentage of pristine sites we have here compared to other. That's why we don't get the recognition in America. I always just thought America was really boring ancient, and nothing happened here. Ever, we never <laughs> really, honestly, yeah. honest. I'm not yeah. joking. Yeah. I, Cause again, the way it's kind yeah. of scripted out is like, you know, Columbus discovered it. And before that there was nothing. Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> I literally well, we had a wildest thought. We had uh, about 11 years ago, one of the, uh, a very, very nice uh, person. She came up and she did a whole thing on us and she ended up uh, on Today Show on NBC. So oh, very, wow. very nice. And I got to spend a whole six hours with her and a cameraman. She was working for a Boston station at the time and about the next year she's on Today Show. Anyway, she was very, very nice uh, to us. We loved her. But when she got on the show, I was watching about two or three years ago, she, uh, Savannah Guthrie had just come back from the Middle East talking about the ancient history and the culture and all of that. We know that. It's amazing over there. And then um, one of the comments by this person was, uh, you know, it's such a shame in America we don't have any ancient sites. Oh, I mean, my God. My chair. So, I mean, and she had been to our site all day. <laughs> but, you know, Mesa Verde, the first national park yes. is Mesa Verde. You think maybe that would be a at least in the right. thousands of those cliff dwellings. I've been there a few mm -hmm. times there That's but uh at least that you know it's like and she's she's a sweetheart she's very good but the comment goes to a lot of ears and people hear that it's yeah. like yeah, yeah. there's nothing nothing here you know and the united states from here to the west coast i mean if you want to see nascar lines you can go down to peru or argentina has fifty thousand square mile go to uh go to blythe california you know on the on the colorado river there's over 200 of those geo geo farms or what they call indilagos you know oh. so i work in the desert there's about 200 mm -hmm. and they actually go towards kansas which is like what 1500 miles some are shaped like serpents some are shaped like different other types of animals some are human shape so blythe if you google blythe indilagos uh uh, and you look at it, it's astonishing. We have the same thing. And I talk about that on the radio shows from the East Coast to the West Coast, the U.S. is loaded. A lot of it's, like you mentioned, a lot of it's been destroyed by, prog you know, homes, roads, plowing, uh, taking. I know St. Louis was called Mound City. And uh, I got pictures on my phone from the 1800s. Uh, right around the time of the Civil War, they must have stopped, but the pictures are on 1860-something. They had actually cranes. I didn't realize we had that equipment. They were actually leveling the mounds, and the city of St. Louis was built on them, and there's a few yep. line of mounds today. I've overnighted uh, back in the 80s with UPS when I was flying from in Madison, Wisconsin, the capital, and that's built on mounds. Uh, yeah, Milwaukee, I've done that more recently. They're on mounds. They're, they're underneath oh. the city, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> So that's a lot of cool. Lexington, Kentucky is another one. But uh, yeah, the, the United States was just loaded with these ancient sites. But I, with this, when I was in Ohio, just to see what had happened to some of them and that what you're looking at as a reconstruction, you know, kind of, it was a little bit of pain, a little bit of sadness. I'm glad sad. they did that. The people that, yeah, it's sad on that part of it. And I'm glad people have recognized it. It's so sad that, you know, you have such so much real estate in Ohio that, you know, they could like build over over here or do the training for the trip. Put a house right here. on top yeah. of it. Yeah. Put a house on top of it, you know. Well, not only and that, but just kind down. of ransacked it, you know, I mean, went every, through all the mounds and dug up everything and just, you know. Every major city. Yeah, yeah, yeah treasure hunt. Yeah. All the major cities in Columbus, yeah. downtown Columbus. Yep. 
Ohio, Mound Street, dead ends into the confluence by the river right of by the Owen water. Tinge in yep. giant. That was like an 80 foot pyramid, essentially. I mean, that was a whole Amazing. temple complex facing due west because that confluence, <laughs> just like yeah. the confluence yeah. of the Ohio and the Scioto, then the yep. confluence of the Great Miami yep. and the Scioto, which goes down into the Ohio River. This was a northern confluence, and Columbus was like one of the epicenters. All those are gone. We maybe have three in the city of Columbus. That are still, um, yeah. you know, around Cincinnati. Same thing. Half Moon Henge structures across the Ohio River in Kentucky. Giant conical pyramids, essentially, oh. all over. All astronomical. There's surveys and photos, uh, but that's all that's left. Not not only did they <laughs> like, couldn't they have just kept one of the big ones? Who knows how many as a monument? No. Like, no. why would you level? Yeah. All of them. How many of them might just kind of be hidden still if a, you know, and maybe if somebody just let top. it go and forest grew up and we just think it's a set of hills out there now. You know, I think there's still some of those well, to be found downtown. for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, throughout Ohio, I still think there's quite a few mounds like that that are naturally preserved. They just kind of got hidden up, kind of like how I think of China. They're, they don't want the pyramids to be brought up over there and they yeah, just let the growth the like they yeah. just let all the environment take over so they're like we don't have those yeah you know we, we don't have to address it then so it's just one of those ways of again kind of knocking down the history of america we're like we just we don't really talk about a lot of the history we we've learned a lot of this just as we've become adults mm. over the years but you know now we're starting to see more of that and that's why i asked you earlier about what is the interest being generated now and how has that gone over the years with your site uh, because I think there's a resurgence of people are kind of getting that itch again of, man, what the hell is really going on? Where did all this really <laughs> come from? And let's get down to some answers because, you know, I'm not trying to take away credit from any culture or, or uh, group, but I just want to know what's going on. There could have been multiple groups that have come through different sites over the years that archaeology kind of looks at now and goes, you know what, maybe they inherited this site and maybe this group inherited that site. I bought it. I bought my house from someone else. Yeah. Right. I didn't go build my own house. My house is from 1910. That's old. You know, that it happens still today. We look at things and we go, this is worthwhile. We are going to repurpose this. And uh, I think us. it's just we made tough... Serpent Mound into a park. Did we right. build Serpent Mound? No. 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 But do people go there and commune and, and, you know, it's a pilgrimage for people all over the world that end up at Serpent Mount. Right. But they're going to come, what, a thousand years from now and go, oh, these people in 2023, they built Serpent yeah. Mount. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It gets lost in translation, yeah. You know. They're, they are arguing even, uh, I think, between four, about three or 400, uh, I guess, B.C. with some evidence at Serpent Mount and then the Ford Ancient Culture. You yeah. know, I don't know where that stands today. I know it's going back Highly and forth. Maybe. Yeah. Controversial. Maybe it has an older, you know, uh, part of it that was built earlier, and then it was yeah. maybe you know used by somebody, and maybe it was fixed up a little bit, and you got a later date. I don't really know, but it's interesting. You know, like yeah. our site, we think we have like a layering of cultures. Uh, in New Hampshire, mm -hmm. now the Native Americans go back about thirteen thousand years. Wow. Uh, west of here, in the town of Keene, it's on the Connecticut River uh, near Vermont. Uh, that's. The latest, and that's uh, you know the glaciers are still the younger dryest and everything is still going on. Mm -hmm. And in northern New Hampshire, above the White Mountains, not too far below Quebec, um, there's a couple of sites up there that dated to between ten and twelve, so Paleo time period. Uh, and they again, we're up in a harsh conditions, even 
they have a little different climate up there than we have in down here. They had snow up in that area not too long ago, you know. So thousands of years ago, the Native Americans were always here. And did they have a big part of these stone structures? Perhaps, you know. Uh, it's, it's been taught to us over the years that Native Americans in the Northeast, and, and actually not just Native Americans, but nobody built any ancient stone works in the Northeast. These things shouldn't exist here, you know. Right. And that's right. what my dad, Goodwin, my dad, Malcolm Pearson, and all the other researchers, so many of them over the years, uh, it's the same thing. You know, there's not supposed to be anything here prehistoric. Uh, you go out west, you have the mounds. You go further out, it's cliff dwellings. You have Mesa mm-hmm. Verde and all those. Uh, you have the Indian medicine wheels. We've been out to uh, Sheridan, Wyoming. Those are amazing. Uh, and then the geoglyphs, like I mentioned in Blythe. And this, you know, all over the country, this ancient work. But New England and New York, Pennsylvania, that area, no, these things shouldn't exist. You know, these sites right. should be something some farmer named Patty or somebody like that built. Right. That's such an illogical well, thought, though. It's such an illogical yeah, thought. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why do you kind think, of biased, too, I think. Why do you yeah, think they've gone so against- hard? If they were here for 13,000 years, <laughs> yeah. we haven't been That's here a for 1,000 years yet. Yeah. Right. Why right, do you think yeah. it is I think the, the mainstream goes so hard on the work that William Goodwin did? Because that seems to yeah, always actually, pop up. Goodwin and- yeah, good one. So many like him. Now, it goes back to even um, John Wesley Powell. You know, he was. Uh, oh. They have the Powell, the Powell doc, yeah. doctrine. You know, and he mentioned that this had more Europeans coming over before Columbus. But he said, if you find any old world artifacts, pre pre uh, colonial, pre you know prehistoric, you're supposed to disavow them. That's kind of that's not scientific. That's that's. That's uh, prejudice. That's bias. Sure. You're already setting yeah. the rules. You you can't find. But uh, his right hand man, I think, it was Cyrus, uh, Thompson. Cyrus Thomas. Actually, Thomas. Thomas. Excuse me. Uh, he said actually. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I get the name. But he uh, basically. Um, I can only pre- paraphrase that he actually found so many that they didn't have uh, time to. Uh, to write them all down, all these artifacts they found that seem to be pre-colonial artifacts found in some of the mounds and other things that they dug up, and I know, very controversial. But then um, Goodwin was running against Samuel Elliott Morrison, the great naval historian from Harvard University, wrote Admiral of the Ocean Sea, European Discovery of, of America. I have both books, but he said NEPCO, no explorers before Columbus. So no Vikings, mm. nobody else coming over before Columbus. Right. And that, again, is kind of prejudiced uh, in that manner. It may not, today, there's a political correctness going on. I don't really care who built our site. I just want to know the truth. So I'm yeah. not going to say, oh, no, you can't talk about this evidence because we, we are not comfortable with it. And we're not like that, you know. We just want to know the truth. Let the evidence lead us to whatever the truth is. Native American, maybe there's old world visitors coming over too, you know. Uh, uh, that's where we stand today, you know. Uh, yeah. We try not to put... We try not to tell people who built the site, but if you looked at the mainstream, oh yeah, that farmer built it. You know, what was the farmer's name and what was his occupation? You know, it's they don't even know. You know, yeah. What about the twelve carbon datings? What about all the uh, astronomical data? It's all coincidence. You know, we've heard that before. You know, uh, the table. They say, well, that's just a big, uh, you know, site of press, or it's a limestone for making soap. So either our site is like a, uh, a it's a, a cider factory or it's a uh, ivory soap factory. Either one. You know, and that's right. that. Takes is about 9,000 pounds. It's shaped like a big bell set up on four legs. And when Goodwin first saw it, he thought it was sitting on the ground. He did not know that the table was supported by four legs. And as I dug down, they were quite, you know, shocked or surprised. Wow. Like, wow, this thing is sitting on legs, not just sitting on the ground, you know, next to the oracle chamber. It's kind of attached to it. Yeah. <clears throat> it was actually uh, a young man, I think named Paul. I don't have his last name. It's not written in his book. A guy named Paul actually had... They had a bunkhouse and they had 
uh, utensils, and he took one of the knives, stuck it between a rock, and he wiggled it. And that's where the oracle tube or speaking tube is. Probably get to that. Yeah. Pulled the plug out of it. There was a stone plug concealing it. And when they get next year, they dug down next to the table on the outside. They found there was another plug of stone blocking up where, you know, it comes out under the table. And they pulled that plug out and they got the six foot tube horizontal going from the oracle chamber, comes out underneath the sacrificial table. We call it the speaking tube today. One of the drains, there's two inside the oracle chamber. These drains are a whole storm system. Uh, there's 12 drains across the hilltop. These are underground drains uh, with parallel walls, with <clears throat> capstones, just like the chambers are, flat capstones, running anywhere from maybe 12 feet up to about 75 feet. And these are used to keep the whole site dry, and they were engineered and built before the structures were built over them. And the ones in the Oracle Chamber, there are two, had plugs of stone in them. It's almost like it makes you wonder if somebody was like winterizing the place and going away. Maybe mm. like you do your camp. We have camps. We have to do that up in New England because everything freezes, you know, and then come back the next spring and you get it ready for summer, you know. Winterizing. Um, it's just a thought. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just I was just going to say winterizing it like you would a camper or, you know, a, a recreational yeah. vehicle or, you know, when you leave your cabin and you, you go to your. Button it up. Yeah, you button it all up, make sure it's all sealed up and. And for further use, so that exactly. totally makes sense. Exactly. And we have some fantastic. And they never, and, they, and then they never came back. You know, whoever right. they were. You know, um, so the site, yeah, it's kind of complex. I mean, it has a whole network of underground drains. Um, we are going to run more ground penetration radar. We've been using it since the '90s. In fact, one of the pieces of equipment was made down the road, a quarter of a mile away from us. Uh, geophysical survey systems. So they were using it on our site in the 90s, and then they moved uh, downtown Salem, and now they're uh, over in Nashville, New Hampshire, okay. so we kind of lost them. But they were bringing people in, customers from all over the world to demonstrate it, and they were using our site to demonstrate the radar with our archaeologist. Our archaeologist was uh, with us for 32 years, and she's retired. She's in her 80s. She was a president of the New Hampshire Archaeological Society, kind of mainstream. Somebody twisted her ear back in 89, the year my son was born, and she came in, and she basically really never left us. So she was thinking outside the box, you know, she was hearing all oh, some colleagues, oh, it's a crazy place up there. Some farmer built that it. it's not worth your time, work on legitimate sites, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Sure. But also the, but the, she, her last name was um, the same name as our uh, state archaeologist who retired a number of years ago. And he, 40 years ago, actually, again, just like, and they're not related, everybody thinks they're married. Um, but he was, he worked for the state of New Hampshire and he was, he was a doctor of archaeology. He worked on three projects 40 years ago on our site, <clears throat> and um, he actually was a lithic specialist, how tools are made, stone tools, utensils, weapons. <clears throat> and he was working on our site with one of our former archaeologists who just passed away in 2016. He was with us for uh, since 1978. He joined us. He was with us for many, many years, almost 40 years, I guess. And uh, they worked together, and basically what our archaeologists saw was that these big slabs of stone, whether it's a monolith, a roof slab, a sacrificial table, uh, any of the other stones that are used for like wall slabs, you call them orthostats, they seem to be shaped. And they're all shaped using a technique called percussion flaking, striking stone against stone, like making an arrowhead, a point, or a stone shovel. Actually, we have one of those at our site we found. The edges of it all serrated. In 1981, uh, he told our staff, look for stones out in the woods that may have been quarried 
uh, propped up, perhaps the edge of it serrated. Look for these. Maybe these are stones that are being prepared to be used for building purposes, but never made it to the to the main site or wherever they wanted it. Right. And a woman named Mary, one of our one of our staff in 1982, sat down on a <clears throat> rock um, about 500 feet from the main site, not too far from the north stone. And she's sitting there, and she notices the stone's tilted, and she's looking down at the edge of it, and she can see a little dimpling in it. And she go, wow. She looked underneath it, and it was raised with a small stone, like a field stone, maybe a foot across or whatever it is, uh, supporting it up. So she brought it to the attention of our archaeologist. He was quite excited about that. And the next year, in 83, he had the doctor, uh, his name is Dr. Gary Hume, come down and observe the whole thing. And uh, they dug down, they found all the flakes of little stones uh, just above the bedrock wow. below where somebody had been striking it. They didn't find the hammerstone in that case. We have found hammerstones elsewhere. Wow. Today, <clears throat> so he very, he actually, <clears throat> Dr. Gary Hume actually uh, said basically that these big slabs of stone uh, were actually quarried. They, they actually worked a fissure crack in the bedrock. They raised the stone up, they propped it, and then they would be striking it with a hammerstone. And it's the same technique used uh, on making an arrowhead or other point, but on a much larger scale. Sure. So it's percussion. It's a Stone Age technology. Yeah. <clears throat> so here's an outsider saying that about the way the stones are shaped. And by the late 80s, um, our archaeologists had identified in the 15 acres on that diorama about 300 of these slabs of stone that were once bedrock that had been separated. And then they had some dressing or what we call uh, shaping using percussion flaking. And they'll put in the walls either as monoliths, they're putting orthostats. We have a lot of big slabs stood on their end in the walls. And that's one thing my dad noticed back in the 50s when farmers use field stones. The walls are fairly straight with some exceptions. These walls twist, turn, and bend, even though the woods was pretty thick back then. We've opened it up a lot since then. And then all these standing, <clears throat> not only standing stones, but stones that are actually set on the edge. And these stones could be several feet long and a few feet high, just stood on their end in those stone walls. And um, one of the chambers called the East-West Chamber, they actually used those same type of slabs to be a wall with a roof slab on top yeah. inside the main site. So those are orthostats either with a structure or just in the stone wall. And again, farmers, they built 240,000 miles of walls in New England. I've been told that's the most of anywhere in the world. You go from here to the moon with the New England wall building, and that's all historic. Sweet wow. Jesus. But when you that's look at crazy. The, <laughs> That's a lot of walls. A lot of know, walls. I Ireland. I thought they had a lot of walls in Ireland. Jeez. You know, but, uh, <clears throat> and, um, but farmers, they get it for, you know, for field clearing, for boundaries, stock fences, you know, maybe all three. Root Our walls, cellars. they just don't look like that. Root cellars. Yeah, I mean, they just, they build walls for every. Yeah, exactly. They build walls <laughs> for everything. Barns, you know, carriage house, farms, whatever. But, <clears throat> but these walls really, even Goodwin kind of looked at them, although he didn't own part of that property where some of the walls were. And the same with Malcolm when he inherited that 20 acres. Uh, my dad ended up during the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, about 50 years ago, I think is when he purchased the last piece of property to buy the entire hill. So about hmm. 110 acres of land. And that's good because these walls are all over the 110 acres. And when I retired in 2016, we started finding uh, – some interesting walls, and I spotted my first one about 27 feet long, and it was on a ridge of bedrock running along it. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. It doesn't go anywhere. It's only, you know, a very short distance it runs. One of it seemed to have like a, a slab that looked like a head, you know, and then I looked at the body. What I thought could be a body behind it tapered down to a flat 
square with rounded corners, kind of a rectangle. I shouldn't say square stone. It was a rectangular stone. And as I looked at it, I said, am I looking at a serpent? You know? mm-hmm. And I stared at it. I walked around the whole thing. And I, it really was blowing my mind. I had been out in the woods going by that many, many times uh, to my dad's house. He lived in, <clears throat> in the north side of the property. And I went by there so many times. And this is about 60 feet off the trail. We use those trails for snowshoeing, by the way. And the wintertime. And I walked over to it. I got off my ATV that day. And I looked at it. And maybe the sun hit it just right. And I got it. I'm like, ah, I think I have a serpent wall, but I have no frame of reference. I don't know anything about walls shaped like snakes anywhere, you know? Yeah. And that spring, I found a couple more. <clears throat> then I had, a, <clears throat> I don't know, you Scott Walters from America on Earth uh, and Alan Butler from England mm-hmm. with their wives. And we had a big entourage, and I actually showed them some of these. And they were calling, like, one of them shaped like a big S, 100, 140 feet long, and has a triangular head, just like a big S. That might be one of the photographs. I'm like, and that, a couple others, and they're like, you know, I think you're onto something. Well, yeah. the next year in 17, I went to one of those nearer meetings, the group my dad started in Connecticut. It was in Broughton, Connecticut, near Gunjiwa. And they're having a meeting there. And one of the speakers was a gentleman that was from North Stonington, down this, about 10 miles away, Connecticut. He was a, uh, a book writer about New England fishing villages. He's also a photographer. And um, he had been there for 30 years, and he's looking at a town with all these walls and structures, standing stones, and he's been told these are all colonial, all farmers' constructions. And it's very treacherous terrain in Austin, it's rocky, uh, it's hilly, it's swampy, and the soil isn't very arable for growing. You could graze some animals there, I guess. But he said, I don't think it's the farmers. What would they use them for, you know? <clears throat> so he wrote a book called Ceremonial Stonework. And before he spoke, I picked up this book, never saw it before, and I'm looking at the back page. 8,000 structures, 270 photographs, 25 categories of structures. And I'm like, is this all of the Northeast? You know, I'm trying to find out. Right. I'm getting kind of like excited. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is North Stonington. And my dad was really into this. And I don't think he ever mentioned North Stonington. Buddhist Connecticut, Danbury, Connecticut, Gunjiwamp, uh, yeah. Thompson, all these other places. But never North Stonington. Turns out uh, the whole town is th- about 35,000 acres. It's just covered with these structures all over the place. And as Incredible. I flip it through it. I'm looking at one of the categories, and one of the categories is serpent walls. And he yeah. has, he believes, about 400 that they counted, 400 serpent walls, twenty, about 27 feet, 30 feet, up to 300 feet. I think 100 feet is about the average. They're linear, rectilinear, they're S, some are S-shaped or curvilinear, and some are actually, they, at our site, they loop around, we found out more after that. They actually loop around and look like they're biting the tail the Ouroboros. Oh, wow. Uh, we have, we think, three of those today. And Ouroboros, I was not familiar with it. My understanding means wholesomeness, circle of life. It also can be a, kind of a, <clears throat> it can be also um, have other meanings too. Eternity or infinity or something like that, I think. But the Ouroboros uh, tend to be an old world thing. But I'm looking at, when I was at the, in your state, looking at some of the artifacts in the museums, there seems to be a few artwork with the serpents and the serpents look like they're biting the tail and i gotta look at that a little closer right in the southwest i've seen the same thing so i think it might be more universal we have them i think at our site and have them there after that i uh after he spoke we i was just blown away by his presentation uh a woman from colorado from denver was speaking with her uh, two male colleagues She, she didn't fly out to the meetings did it by skype we sat in the back of about 100 people, and I wish she was there. I wanted to talk to her because she's showing the same stonework he showed in, his, in the hour before, 
standing stones, cairns, chambered cairns, uh, uh, linear cairns, also uh, D-shaped wall, like the letter Delta. And we have one at our site. And on that diorama, uh, I think it's at the, it's kind of almost out of the picture, but at the bottom, okay. there is a D-shaped wall. And I noticed that when I did that diorama, <clears throat> I built that in college back in 1977, 78 during the winter. Is, that, is it the one that's the <clears throat> yeah. bottom left there of it? <clears throat> Let's see. Yeah. So my, my uh, phone yeah. is so small, it's hard for me to see it. But yeah, I think it's in the bottom. It's kind of a D-shaped wall. Yep, and I, I, I noticed it. that 45 years ago. Well, he has those in Austonington, and then she's showing her D-shaped walls. Uh, and this is east of Denver. It's kind of below Nebraska. It gives the county. We have been out here a few times, and I've never there seen any of that stuff. <clears throat> yeah. And next, she starts to show her serpentine walls out there. And one of them had the same triangular head as one of our... Today we have fourteen. We think at our hilltop. Wow, fourteen serpent walls. That's <clears throat> the shortest one being twenty-seven feet. They have a head, a body, and tail. <clears throat> the longest one we believe is the watch house. And I think on that diagram, I have updated it in the last two years. Uh, the pink or kind of reddish wall that goes around the outside. Yep. That starts at the watch house. It's a satellite chamber. Goodwood was doing work in it, looking at it, very interested in that chamber. That chamber has a lot more um, interesting facts about it. It's kind of a multifunctional chamber. And it's to the bottom right of the picture. I think there's a number on it. I yeah, it's right at the corner on the bottom right. And I think there's a number next to it, which I can't see on my phone, obviously. But um, so this that is, watch house. This goes over how many acres? This entire yeah, picture so that, we're looking at? You're looking at uh, where the red wall is that loops around yeah. is about 15 acres. And the diorama might have like 16 acres. There's a little bit outside of that, okay. of the 110 acres. Wow. So there's a lot that's not showing. And because in the 70s when I made that, it's a 1 to 20 scale. Okay. And it's uh, three-dimensional. Uh, three, I use a magic lantern to create that while I was in college, you know. Gotcha. And uh, that's... And that's when we did the survey from 73 to uh, 77. Okay. Because okay. that was phase one. The other 90 acres have amazing stuff on it, too. It's just not on that diorama. There's more serpentine walls. Um, and I'll get into the other thing, too. Yeah. But this, the, the watch house actually is a glacial boulder. There are 50 structures like that in the northeast. Uh, a glacial boulder with a structure built on the left side of it. So as you're looking at it, you see a glacial boulder on the right and a chamber on the left. The Gunshin Womp has one of those. Mm -hmm. And there's others There's others like 40, what would be 48 others or 49 others around the northeast. But what we never really noticed is behind the watch house, we knew there was a wall there. And until... Uh, I started looking at these serpent walls in 2016, and I never really saw it. My eyes were blind to this whole thing. And plus, there's a lot more trees and brush back then. Right. My wife and I spent a lot of time clearing that. Mm -hmm. And what you can see now is behind it is an undulation. The wall goes up and down like the back of a serpent. It goes around. Oh, my God. Oh, I see it. So I see it on the picture. Uh, I hate right? to interrupt you, Dennis, but we just had a Mike Luomon, yeah. Mysteries of New England author, and he is uh, a NERA member. So he just oh, went yeah. to the he's been going to these conferences now for the last few years and uh, actually talked about uh, several books that inspired him. And uh, I'm not sure if he's referring to your father. But Might there were uh, definitely two people that he he brought up uh, that were the founding members of Nira, and and that's where he is kind of yeah. getting some of the information that oh, he's yeah. been, and he is 
uncovering these undulating serpent walls all over the well, place. and the the side of the actual like rock like the former, a serpent carved onto the side of the rock was another one that he had he had ton, a oh, bunch of things know. that he showed oh, us yeah. uh yeah well, if you uh yeah actually check out that episode we, he actually right. talks about the the former sea of uh which which is now um lake uh is it Lake Mead? No, it's no. no, no, no. It's in um, what was the lake? Um, but it used to be an inland sea, and so basically, uh, Lake not Lake Victoria, Lake Placid. What is the lake? Oh my gosh! <laughs> I thought it was a very famous lake. No, Lake uh, Lake Champlain. So Lake Champlain used to be massive though, an huge, huge inland sea. And so what he did was he started finding on the former. Basically, the uh, high the, water line, the outskirts of that former sea. He's yeah. finding these serpents all around, and once he right. figured out where the inland sea was, he started tracking these and finding these serpents all around that area. Wow! And so when wow. you said you have undulating yeah. rock wall serpents, yeah. yeah, that's exactly what he's finding as yep. well. And he's okay. a part of Nira, yeah. um, and yeah. a lot of this stuff. He really started getting some more information on the the Nira event that just happened in may and is was doing some networking um but here's uh mike's book right here if you can see What's that his last name uh mike uh, luoma l-u-o-m-a okay. yeah yeah and, i might have met him but i don't know you know i can't remember yeah he's wow, definitely, that, looks, that looks excellent wow um i'll have to get the book now <laughs> yeah it's a, i will have to get that right yeah that's good thank you for that you two would probably have a I'd lot love to, to talk connect about you guys yeah. because i feel like uh Appreciate you know it. and actually with mike on his episode i remember actually mentioning you finding serpents on your property because at that time when we were recording and shooting mike's episode you were emailing me stuff about serpent walls out at right. your site so right. it just kind of blew my right. mind right. Well, not trying to get too <laughs> off topic it's like the but, synchronicity oh, that's though, great. Uh, that's even great. what his uh, uh was it your grandfather or your father that purchased the place kind of you know seeing the place yeah. over and over and i need to buy this i'm just how am yeah. i seeing this yeah. so many times it's exactly just funny how those things start to repeat out but I, I would love to go over some of these uh, these images. Oh, that you sent as well, your diorama, yeah. by the way, really really cool stuff. Um, and and so kind of just moving forward with these photos are, I mean, fantastic. Right. And uh, well, we'll mention when, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead. Sure. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I know you you've had some legitimate astronomers out on the property, people that have been researching archaeoastronomy on the property. And, uh, and, and like you said, you, it's up until kind of recently realized that these are so many different alignments here on your property. Yeah, actually, yeah, that's correct. Um, I will mention on the, uh, that watch house where the serpent head begins, you know, the serpent, well, it does go counterclockwise to our best knowledge today. <clears throat> and we did GPS the wall 2,550 feet. And it comes right in front of the watch house, does one more hump, 90 degree twist, and the tail is a perfectly pointed tail right in front of the, uh, and what would be the mouth or the head, you know, the front part of the serpent's head. Um, this particular stone is the winter solstice sunset. That wall I just mentioned actually touches every astronomical foresight. You know, when you have an alignment, you need to have two, two points, the foresight and the backside. You can't just make things up and look at one rock and walk around and make your birthday right. up. You could right. do that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you need it. You need a gun. You need basically like a gun sight, you know. So you have to have something there sure, to exactly. have an alignment. <clears throat> and that's this stone right here. 
uh, is part of that body of that serpent, that 2550. Oh, it, it touches every astronomical foresight. Um, the back site is the astronomical center where there are two cons and we have the diagrams and Mr. Goodwin, unfortunately, they photographed them. They destroyed them in the late 30s, rebuilding the ramp by the uh, sacrificial oh. table. Oh, wow. He thought <clears throat> he thought there were beehive chambers and he thought they were attached to the earth. It's all in his book, too. And plus all the records. We have so many thousands of pages, this documentation. Some that has to do with the site and other sites. Some has to do with some business stuff, you know, his yep. personal stuff. Even uh, even writing to uh, Morgan, J.P. Morgan's dad. I forget the guy's name now, but there's letters there going back into the 1800s. That's incredible. <clears throat> but he just, but yeah, that's pretty cool. <clears throat> Malcolm gave us so much, you know, that he had been given by by Mel, by uh, J, uh, by uh, Goodwin when he when his when he passed his widow gave him so much of the uh, all this stuff from Goodwin. <clears throat> but um, yeah, so you need a foresight and a backsight. And the, the backside was those two mounds. He thought they were attached to the oracle chamber. And when he started cleaning out all the brush and debris, he realized they were separate. In fact, there's one of those underground drains separating one of those storm drains. Hmm. But that was first clear at that alignment in 1965. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> it's because of a, a book called Stonehenge Decoded by Gerald Hopkins. Came out in 65, and there was a CBS special called The Mystery of Stonehenge. And when the near members, my dad and others, saw that TV special and got the book, <clears throat> they started thinking more about these, <clears throat> excuse me, stones out in the um, in the woods like this. Right. <clears throat> I apologize. I got the... Yeah, go ahead and take a drink You're if you fine. need, buddy. You're fine. Yeah. Go ahead and grab a drink of water. <laughs> yeah. We all will. You're fine. <laughs> <clears throat> No, I'm sorry. <clears throat> uh, so anyway, they, uh, they they knew these stones were out in the distance, and Goodwin even knew about them, too. So by 65, we actually started clearing. That's about 800 feet of trees from the center of the site out. They had a clear. I see. And yeah. the gentleman, <clears throat> so that was done kind of um, as on a guess. You know, I think we might have something. we got to check it and see if we do have it, because the woods were so thick, you'd never see the sun setting out there, even in the wintertime when the, when the trees blew their leaves, you know? Yeah. And so <clears throat> the first photographs, actually, I just got them about two years ago from the guy that actually was involved with that clearing. He was one of our staff members from 1963 when he was about 15, I think, up to 1968. And he was with us. He was an assistant manager by the time he left us in 68. But he um, he's still around, and he was um, on that clearing, and he took pictures in 67. And we got the first couple photographs I have. Them. I don't think I sent them to you, but they're actually were given to me him uh, about two years ago. And I never knew they existed because <clears throat> 1970, my dad, my neighbor uh, up in Derry <clears throat> came down and we met him again in his parents' yard. And he had built a wooden snowmobile out of parts from a Polaris. And he actually put this thing together and he actually broke the trail from his parents' house, which is abutting our property, a half a mile or so up to the main site. And he broke the trail. We get up there and I saw my very first sunset. It was on that stone wow. in 1970. And until two years ago, I thought that was the first. Then he slips me these two photographs he took in 67 and there were cirrus clouds and you could see the bright part of the sun over that stone. You couldn't really see the ore because of the cirrus clouds, but you could see the light setting right on it in these, both these photographs. <clears throat> Wow, he's an interesting guy. He went into the uh, when he came up in 1970. He was working on the uh, the USS Nimitz. He was putting the two nuclear reactors. He's a nuclear engineer, very smart guy. He graduated top of his class. He was putting the reactors, and the Nimitz still going out there today. The TikTok, 
right. you know, uh, with David Fravor. Yep. By the way, David Fravor lives about five miles from here. He's from Ohio. He was in San Diego. What? He moved to New Hampshire. What? And he's living right down the street. So I'm hoping he'll visit us because I would talk flying and UFOs That's- with him. All day, <laughs> but anyway, can we be there when that happens? Dennis, hold on, Dennis, hold on, Dennis, hold on, Dennis, hold on, pause, pause, pause. Holy cow, I think you just broke me. That's uh, yeah, that's awesome. That's incredible. Yeah, you definitely should go talk shop with him with your experience. Yeah, that would be yeah. an amazing okay. conversation. Yep. I, oh I will goodness. mention that the engineer who put his reactors on his aircraft carrier is a guy that worked for us as a kid, and um. So he was working on that in Newport News, Virginia, and he drove up in his bug eye, 1958 uh, Triumph, came up, met us, you know, his snowmo- wooden snowmobile, and he broke the trail. We went up and saw all of that. Um, and I've been getting correspondence with him. He actually ended up, at the end of his career, working uh, in Japan. He was in France working in the nuclear industry, too, as well as over here. But when Fukushima went up, he was working at Westinghouse. Right. He was one of the five people from Westinghouse. He was the last one on that team actually working on the Fukushima thing. Uh, about 10 or 11 years ago, right after that, maybe a year or so, he actually went back, I think, to Charlotte, North Carolina, and he retired. So he's been, uh, he's got a place in Maine on an island, and he also lives in France in the winter. He's, he just got back from France. He's going to come down, and he hasn't seen an alignment there since 1970. So he promises me, wow. I hope he does, to see him the summer solstice. Uh, so a lot of cool stuff like That's that, so you know, cool. uh, kind of a strange stuff like that. But, um, uh, anyway, he opened that clearing up, and, um, well, after that, we began opening up more of the clearings, and uh, today we think we have it. Look how beautiful <coughs> that image is yeah. of the final glimpse the final of the winter glimpse. solstice. And it's I'll just say so- that that's one of the things that's missing at Serpent Mound and the places in Ohio is the Ohio History Connection refuses to clear the brush. They don't want and them they to don't be highlighted. actually even accept that they are alignments like the mainstream, even though that there's been endless amounts of research and the Dowsing Associated Association in the 80s discovered the summer solstice sunset yeah. and some of those. Oh, they did. And okay. Since then, yeah. the equinox, moonrise, and and moonset, and I mean, there's so many alignments, but you can't see anything from them. But there's trees everywhere. Our friend Jeffrey Wilson flies the drone above for the summer solstice celebration every year and sends mm-hmm. it into basically their speaker tent, so everybody from the drone can actually watch the summer solstice Uh-oh. sunset and so yeah. that's the only way to see it is from a drone now you guys are way ahead of the curve and i think this is exactly yeah. what needs to happen at sites here in ohio is they gotta yeah. start clearing some of this brush away if you look at the early yeah. drawings of serpent mound there's no big giant trees i mean you were just there no you see those giant trees all over and yeah. And, yeah. and you just can't see any of these sunsets and sunrises it's sad i heard I, I had heard that before i got there and i had heard also that these trees are planted back you know 80 or 90 years ago and we love trees you know but uh sure, you have yeah. to sometimes thin them so you can see and yeah. I, I heard there was a reluctance on the uh i guess it was ohio connection to do that which is yeah. a shame uh it is a they're trying to get it as a uh, unesco world heritage site yeah. along with the others in ohio which i think is wonderful you know um but they really need to you know, I think sometimes people, uh, they don't understand, us. they study maybe archaeology or history or prehistory, yeah. but astronomy is foreign to them, so they don't even want to wrap their mind, or they can't get yeah, their mind yeah, wrapped yeah. up. You need, yeah. to, you need to open you need up an all alignment. Of it, right? You need, you need all, all these that. different groups and, and yes, specialty yeah. sciences that, that's, to that's when you study get the magic. Yeah. yeah. That's when you actually yeah. get like, you know, <laughs> it's like somebody that walks in and goes, 
and, and can see the problem right away, the solution, right? Because they are coming from a different perspective. I always think of Robert Shock mm-hmm. and the Sphinx and yeah, his, ge- oh, yeah. his geological s- survey of it versus what the archaeologists say. And he's like, look, you can yeah. have your theory. Here's the actual dates. Yeah. Do with it what you will. Right. It's at least 12,000, 200 years old. Yeah. I love it. Oh, by the way, (laughs) I think he's wonderful. I've been talking. I actually Facebooked this friend, uh, his wife, and his wife has been really nice. We've been talking. I've been sending him the photographs you see. Oh, amazing. She was aware of our site. She did not know the extent of the site. Then she gave me his email. He emailed me back. I wanted to talk to him for years. Wow. You know, and they're supposed to, they're threatening, they're both threatening to visit us this summer. I don't know when. (laughs) And they're only down the road about 40 miles. But they are, as she said, and he said, Broke the operation made out of lectures. They're all over the country doing lectures, but he does want to come and spend some time, and I would love to meet uh, both of them, you know? All right. Uh, this, this is a shot way, in the dark. Jeff, Jeff, oh. This is a shot in the dark, <laughs> okay. and I just have to know this, because if you do know Michael Cremo, I just need to know that, and then we can move on. But if yeah, you say, yeah, I've seen him on TV, yeah, in okay. his books and everything. Yeah. But you're not um, in connection with him as well. I... Oh, can you fix us up? No, I was wondering the I, same. I don't, oh my he's God. he's no. trying to get you, his you, contact from you, You've thrown out Dennis. so many amazing <laughs> names right now. People are like, oh, yeah, I'm talking. I'm like, just so on a chance, if you know Michael Primo, I got to put that out there, but you don't. But, yeah. yes, we share Which, an interest. By the way, let me just actually put it out there and remind everybody how we found out about what well, we knew about Dennis and we knew about America Stonehenge. But, I did not. Mike uh, did, but I'll be fully honest. Heather, okay, yeah, Heather yeah. L. Arnold actually yeah. sent us. Yeah, she's wonderful. She yeah. connected us with you and, and said, you should totally get Here, Dennis uh, on the show. Here's the reaction. Who is, here's the reaction. Dennis. She's researching. She's really the one, Ruben yeah, Giants. She's, she's, she sent me your name and gave me your story. I went to Mike and said, Hey, I've got this contact from Heather. What do you think? And he goes, are you kidding me? And I said, is this good? And he oh, goes, that's great. He goes, do you not know what America Stonehenge is? And I'm like, no, I don't, but I'm so happy that you're happy because this is oh, what I'm like, trying wait, to do. Wait is, a minute. You got I, the guy that owns America Stonehenge. Yeah. What so, do you mean? I, I have the desire and the interest. Mike has a lot more of the background and details to a lot of the aspects of the things that we like to top, uh, talk about, you know, so a lot of our topics. So that was really an enjoyable day for me to go, hey, okay. I think we're going to get to talk to this guy. And he was like, oh, my God, like, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I'm so always Heather. along for the ride. Thank you, Heather. Yeah. Heather did a Heather fantastic rules. job. When her episode's been so popular. I mean, it's been, her episode's it, been it, you know, people fantastic. really, uh, the ancient civil civilizations all across the globe everybody i i really think there's a resurgence uh which is why you know i've been into this stuff for a long time but um i think we're you know quenching some thirst out there for this for sure and uh i think the interest even my wife you know she's mentioned the interest seems to have picked up you know which is good you know i've seen seen that well, when you have places like this, this image here, the south-facing chamber, uh, turtle effigies, again, the turtle island mythology, uh, Ohio being connected with that, the great Manitou civilizations and Turtle Island and, um, you know, the potential that the head of the serpent mound being a turtle. So Ohio is very much connected with the turtles, the serpents. And here uh, in this image, uh, can you talk to us about this chamber? 
Yeah, that, that tape is pretty much original. Uh, 1982 and I think 1993 or something, there was some earthquake, caused a little bit of damage to the front of it. It didn't knock it down. It just cracked a couple rocks, and our archaeologists had to do a little repair on that. But that's pretty much, uh, if you look at Goodwin's photographs, it looks like it did back then. And people have been saying in the last couple of years, hey, that chamber up there, the south-facing chamber, we used to call it the lilac chamber. There's lilac bushes on top that the Patty family may have mm -hmm. planted there. It looks like a turtle. And I've walked up there, I'm like, well, a turtle, what are they looking at? You know, I couldn't quite visualize that. But last summer, I went up with my dog. We live on the summer solstice sunset, kind of. We bought two acres back in 1985, built a house here in 86 so on a cul-de-sac. Fortunately, we were able to get the land that abuts the property here, and we bought our own property, and we're neighbors of this, you know, it's in our backyard. So I walk my dog up here quite often uh, for exercise, plus just to keep an eye on the place, you know. And I went over there, on a, it was an overcast day, and I took a whole bunch of photographs. Some of those are the ones you'd be using today. And I got back, I stood back from it, and I looked at it, I said, oh my God, I think I see the turtle now. Um, I wasn't sure, but it looks like the head could be on the left, and it's partly out of the frame here. We're missing part of the uh, the head. But the leg underneath that lintel, the lintel would be a belly, the leg on one side, and the back leg, and you can see how it goes off to the right down to a little tail. And I think that's what the people were talking about. When you stand there now and look at it, it almost looks like the profile of a turtle. Mm -hmm. And you can see up by the lilac bushes, the hump back kind of, you know? Yep. Um, I think I think it could be, um, you know, I wouldn't bet my life on it, but that yeah. may be in fact the shape of that structure. Now. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I see your yeah. Yeah. Mike, Mike well, talked about like, Henry. It took you a couple minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it took us 65 years to see that. You saw it. <laughs> I mean, well, you're, you'd be entering, you'd be entering the body on the left hand side, right between the left legs. Is yeah, that you're saying? So the, in this think, picture, think, in this picture, we're looking. Yeah, you at. go right. I think you'd be crawling under. If you went straight into the chamber, you're crawling under the belly, and the leg is on the left side. There's a leg on the right side, you know, uh, of that opening. Right, right. But and I'm it, saying it, you're coming from the left yeah. hand profile of the turtle where the oh, opening is. Yeah. It could be, yeah, yeah, possibly. Because that's why I'm seeing yeah. that head going out to the left yeah. of the picture. Because we're looking at this from my image, we're looking at a profile of the turtle from its left. Its head is going off to the left, and its back is going to the right. Yeah. So that little nub I think so, yeah. is the tail with the the moss and the grass and the green stuff growing on yeah. top of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, could, I think so. I could go with that being a turtle from that. And you're entering it's this possible. turtle. How crazy of a thought is that? Too, you're entering this turtle. <laughs> It's at uh, it's just you know it's just I you know we keep finding more and more things here that uh, kind of in front of us that we haven't seen. Uh, I mean the fourteen serpents, that particular possibly a turtle effigy. Yeah. Um, that you're actually standing on that picture, looking kind of south towards the uh, sacrificial table. You see a monolith on the on this side of it, and further you can see another monolith on the other side of the right. table. Right. Some people have different theories what they might be, like a male and female. I've been to Avebury, and they have the West Canada Avenue, and they had the uh, the monolith. Some of them are missing today, but the, the thin ones were the males, and the wider hip ones were the females. It's a sacred way. That's an interpretation. We don't know what the ancient people thought. But that's a table right there, about nine feet, roughly six feet. There's a deep groove on the top of it. Recently, we found out that the, the groove actually is not a rectangle, it's a trapezoid in shape. It's nine inches shorter. And I think the next photograph you'll show looking down at the table, it almost looks rectangular. And everywhere you read, oh, the rectangular groove on the table, it's a very deep groove, it's a, a wide groove. If you have a lie stone, it's usually a circular groove, it's very small yeah, enough for maybe a, 
Yeah, yeah, looking down at it now, exactly. You can still see the uh, the monolith on the left, and you can see the table with the monolith on the right. You're standing on the platform, and the platform uh, is probably where, if it was used for ceremonial purposes, people could stand and look down. Um, but the groove itself is actually a trapezoid in shape. We've been doing LIDAR. We're using a handheld LIDAR. It's a $50,000 unit. The guy's from Connecticut, and he called me three years ago and wondered if he could do maybe 15 acres of the site. I said, come on up. Yeah. He had just purchased that unit made in Florida, um, and we had the uh, U.S., uh, I think, finished their drone work over uh, – that drone, the uh, LIDAR work over the United States, I think, in 2018, is my understanding. And we have some of the imaging from about 10 years ago, uh, and the resolution wasn't too good. We blew these – light our pictures up and you can see some of the walls on our property. They're all fuzzy, you know, very, very, right. uh, no fidelity to it. Yeah. Pixelated. Well, this, this uh, particular unit was $50,000 and it, and it basically puts out 300,000 uh, points per second. Each square, Jeez. each uh, square meter is uh, 150,000 points. And he said, uh, the drones were about four to 800 and airborne was less than that. So this is really high fidelity. He bought a supercomputer, the software is from Montreal, and he did the 15 wow. acres, basically my diorama, again, what we surveyed back mm -hmm. in the 70s. And you can see down to about a centimeter, about a centimeter or two. You can actually wow. have something that small and actually figure it, maybe a penny or a quarter. You can actually kind of make it up. <clears throat> you can actually go into space with this. You can go, you know, it's just amazing what you can do. He spent 600 hours with a supercomputer, again, the software from Montreal, and it took him 600 hours to process the data. And he's been doing other sites on the East Coast, you know, from uh, New Hampshire all the way down to Pennsylvania. I think he did the Newport Tower. Uh, that mm. was amazing. And then he might have done some gunshot warm work, too, but sites in Pennsylvania, too, you know. And is that so available, what we know is, What's that? Have they released that I'm data sorry? yet? Have you guys released that <clears throat> data? <clears throat> yeah, actually, um, yeah, he's, he's uh, he gave us the hard, uh, the hard drive on that. And... Uh, I have sent you a couple pictures. One of them was the watch house ladder image, and the other one was uh, a side image, and you can see the serpent beautifully in that. Um, but uh, what we did notice looking at some of the structures, and he went into the chambers themselves and lied at that too, so inside and outside the chambers. Yeah, we know. have a couple of those and, <clears throat> down the and road. What we found, yeah, and what we're finding out is, like, there's a structure called the chamber in ruins. We thought it was rectangular, shoebox shape. It's actually it's actually a trapezoid for the floor plan. The paddy chamber, named after the paddies but not built by the paddies, is a structure on the uh, east side of what we call the courtyard, which is where the paddies built a wooden house over, used it for a cellar hole. Both the chamber, which has a stone roof, just like the other one, uh, is trapezoid on its floor plan. The, where the paddies built there are 20 by 40, roughly. It's kind of a standard size house for around the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. The house is no longer there, but the uh, the cellar hole we think is original. And then they put a wall across it. We use Lolly columns, steel with concrete posts today, Lolly columns, but they used a stone wall. But that, the, the original walls, and you can see it in his LIDAR, is trapezoid in shape. Hmm. So, and on the table picture to the left of that big tall standing stone, there's like a, uh, it's like a small uh, opening. It's uh, like a vestibule, I guess. It's like a, 
looks rectangular with these two niches. And we thought that if anybody did a sacrifice, it's on the left side. It's kind of hard to make out. It's on the very, very left, just to the left of that vertical stone. There's two little niches. And we thought that if that was used for sacrifice, maybe they kept the animals. It's one of those, you know, one of those theories. It's, we don't yep. have any evidence. Right. But that little structure, again, is not rectangular. It's actually trapezoid. So we'd be finding this trapezoid shape. We know in Mexico, I've seen it. And since I haven't been to South America, but it's down there. But it's also in some of the sites in Europe too. Some of the megalithic mm-hmm. sites have the trapezoid. There's doorways, windows, sometimes it's a floor plan. Well, we're finding the trapezoid seems to be something going on with our site, and that's going to need more research, more work to look into it, to verify it, you know, and then to maybe somebody can come up with some ideas, you know? Yeah. So the trapezoid's a new find in the last wow. couple of years. My dad never knew about that. The serpentine walls, uh, that happened seven years after my dad passed, just as a reference. Um, and that there is the oracle chamber, and that's about 27 feet long. It's shaped like a Y. If you took the roof off, looked on it, you used to call it the Y chamber. It looks like the letter Y almost. You're just looking kind of north and south towards the entrance, and the entrance used to have a roof over it with a lintel. And we have all those photographs going back to about 1900 with the roof still on it. Um, they say in 1928, the town of Salem... Uh, lowered the lintel stone into it to keep kids from playing inside the chamber because just above your head where this picture's taken, there's a big, one of the large roof slabs. And it's, today it's still cracked. We have metal, uh, we have these metal um, beams going across to help keep it in place for oh, safety. Wow. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Our archaeologists, our no, I don't know if you can. Um, maybe it's in the ceiling. So. Might be the. Yeah, I don't know. They're actually. Uh, can you show that, Kyle? I'm not sure. But there are three beams up there now to help hold it up, you know. But the town was worried about kids uh, getting in there and getting hurt if the ceiling fell in, if the multi-ton slab come down on top of you. Um, Right. So they lowered the stone into the chamber, and they destroyed the lintel stone. It's been missing. And our Mm. archaeologist that was with us for almost 40 years, his name was Dr. David Stewart-Smith, and he died in 2016, just as we were finding the serpentine walls. And uh, another thing we started finding that year are windows lintel windows in the stone walls themselves. We think we have about 20 of them today. They're wow. in, they're, uh, but they're also found um, in uh, North Stonington, and that's one of the categories. And some of our windows in the stone walls have stone shutters, either stacked up like Venetian blinds, cobbles, or a flat stone that actually sits inside of it. It was standing next to it. And our assistant archaeologist, we don't like to move anything. We try to have our visitors not move anything, try to keep, you know, that's true of anywhere yeah. you go archaeologically. Don't touch it. Just look at it. Yeah. Well, oh, gosh. Yeah. but I said, you know, you know, we don't want to alter anything. And who knows, maybe, yeah. uh, you know, some dating technique like uh, optically stimulated luminescence uh, by removing the stone, you just expose it to the light and that destroys that 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 dating mm-hmm. technique. Here. Mm-hmm. But I said, you know what? Why don't we try this for an experiment? We'll photograph it. He took it out carefully. He put it fit perfectly into the window, and then we put it back. And again, probably we'll catch hell for that someday. But <laughs> these these uh, these windows could be shut, and they're in the stone walls in the Berkshires where there are more. Jim Vieira, who was on uh, History Channel yep. with uh, the Road Oak and the Lost Giants, yep. he was a member of my dad's group too. Uh, Scott Walters, again, was a member of my dad's group, too. So we've had a lot of people with their shows on TV, too. But Jim's been to our site. When he came in uh, 2015, the last time I saw him, he had uh, Hugh Newman, 
and Andrew Collins. And Andrew Collins is bigger than Gobekli Tepe. Yep. And they're from England, you know. They all came in together. Dr. Little from Memphis was pretty cool, you know. And that's before my windows and before my uh, my serpents were found. But Jim Bier actually showed a couple friends of mine in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, kind of the western part of Mass, sort of. Uh, Circuit walls, and they have the windows in them. And that's where most of our windows are located, in the circuit walls. Hmm. So that's another do find. <clears throat> so we have windows in the structures. This chamber has a window actually in this eight-foot bed. It's a, a window. It's an opening with a lintel. <clears throat> that's in the structure. The chamber roots has two windows. But the stone walls, we never knew until 2016 when I started finding uh, these windows in the walls. I'm like, what the heck is that? Beautiful little windows. And my dad used to go out there 20 years ago with a, a doctor of astronomy from Penn State, Dr. Winkler. He joined us in 1997, and he was with us for five years, uh, four years. Uh, actually, from 97 to 2001, he died of a heart attack. He was there for 34 years. He was an accurate astronomer. And he used to go out and look at all these walls. I'd be flying, and my dad would tell me at night, you know, when I get to the hotel, he goes, oh, yeah, Louie and I, he came up from Pennsylvania. We're out there looking at the uh, windows on my ATV. He'd ride them all over the place. They never saw the serpent shape, and they never saw the windows. And they were, their eyes were open. These things are hard to find. Yeah. In fact, I was doing some cleaning for firewood, and I'm looking, and then I didn't see anything. I went back like a week later and I'm moving more firewood. And I'm like, my God, what did they, they just appeared in front of me. There's the windows I didn't see a week before that. Oh, wow. I don't know why it's like that. I don't know why it's like that. Hmm. It's just, I mean, you can hiding in plain sight. There's so much you can, there. You can drive the same road to your job for 30 years and that 31st year you'll go, I never noticed that house ever. I've never seen that road or whatever it is. So sometimes yeah. it's just, you know, yeah, if your mind isn't in that mode. The light has to catch yeah. at a certain time for you yeah. to really. Exactly. Yeah, where it yeah, highlights exactly. something that you've never seen at that from that angle. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's understandable. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. especially yeah, being in like you know some nature that's grown over it too, and trying to parse that away and look yeah. at it and go, what am what am I seeing here? You know, that's difficult. Yeah. And yeah. then earlier you had talked about these speaking tubes, which I didn't want to go too far in, but we have this amazing this image cool. here. And you were talking about how they were capped to maybe be preserved from flooding or who really knows. But um, how are these connected? Yeah, so you're looking uh, to the west from the inside of the Oracle Chamber. You have to okay. walk down the uh, – you look at the entrance. You're heading kind of like to the north, um, that 27-foot part of the structure. And there's a whole wing that goes to the east. So you're looking west, and that above there is that little opening. And that's actually the speaking tube. It goes through about six feet, comes out underneath the sacrificial table. And that's where that uh, young gentleman that was helping um, Goodwin and his team, they had a team up there working, uh, actually found that, <clears throat> that one first, and he found the plug, pulled it out, and saw there was a hole there. And the next year when they cleaned the table underneath it, about three feet of dirt, <clears throat> uh, they found that the uh, they found that other plug. And the plug came out, and they could see right through the whole hole, six feet horizontal hole. And below that uh, tube, that speaking to on the bedrock, there's a step, and it's actually perfect for somebody about five and a half feet, five ten, I guess, something like that. You can stand on that step. It's part of the original bedrock, and they quarried around it to lower the floor, but they left that right there, that piece of bedrock. <clears throat> and you stand up on that, and you can yell through there. The voice comes out under the table. It sounds like the table's speaking to you. Wow! So they're <clears throat> in there freaky. underneath. <laughs> 
maybe chanting or singing or some part of a ritual. I I picture, you know, someone chanting in this kind of like everyone around the whole structure is in kind of this meditative state. You could also maybe pipe in some like uh, drumming or smoke, smoke. Sure. Uh, you know, well, there is a there is a there is a chimney flue in the north. It's the right of that photograph, and the chimney flue uh, wasn't. They didn't see it when they got in there. When Goodwin first got in there, they didn't notice that. Or of course, the speaking to. And um, one of the one of the gentlemen, Roscoe Whitney or something, looked at it and said, "Wait a minute, there's something going on at the far end on the north side yep. with kind of stones look unusual." What they were is two stone dampers that were in the chimney flue itself. Oh, yeah. And, uh, wow. And when they dug on top of it, they removed the dirt. They found a big stone that had been placed over the chimney on top of the two louvers, and they cleaned that all out, and we got the photographs of the louvers. Unfortunately, the stone louvers were stolen. Uh, When we opened up, I think in 1958, somebody got in there and removed them, and they've never been found again. So, Uh, But there might have been a smoke thing going on with that, smoke coming through. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And if people... Kind of like the Wizard of Oz, you know. Yeah. So if they yeah. <laughs> if they close this place up and they block that, if anybody ever got in there, some one of the uh, villagers or whoever came up for the ceremonies or pilgrim or whatever got into this chamber where nobody was around. I'm sure it was sacred and nobody was supposed to be there right. except for right. it was controlled the under the shaman was there. It was under tight control. Yeah. This chamber, when you look at the oracle chamber from above, I mean the uh, sacrificial table, looking to the east as we were, you can't see, but behind. There's where that oracle chamber is. It's behind the table. It looks like it's part of a ridge that goes to the north. It's called the sheep back. It's just a bedrock outcropping. It runs. And what they did is they just continued that ridge and made a chamber in there. And you won't even know there's a structure there. So people standing up watching a ceremony on the table perhaps would hear this voice coming out and maybe it's smoke thing too. But it's a Wizard of Oz thing going on there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I think. Oh, yeah. That's a great metaphor because that's what it, it does Cranking like, levers and waving, yeah, waving it, feathers. You're kind of putting in this, like I said, this kind of mystical state. Yeah. You're creating this maybe an illusionary or some kind of visionary or, state. What if and, it's one of those... Uh, uh, and like sound a, is always a part of it. There's always some like, kind of sound vibrational technology yeah. that they're using. Did they use smoke, you know, smoke lodges? Or am I thinking of a story I read about that? I know sweat lodges, but other, you know, maybe it was another format of something like that. Again, if it's, you yeah. know, this kind of ceremonial chamber maybe it was something like that and then hey there's this uh event happening that we can see and you know we're influencing that as well i don't know i mean i'm imagining a lot now that you've got (laughs) the oracle chamber does have uh it has two drains as i mentioned it has two carvings one is of what they call the deer carving but even in the 60s it didn't look like a like a white-tailed deer the horn is incorrect the the antlers or whatever are incorrect Hmm. what it looks like is an ibex and he even said that in the 60s, a possible ibex. And um, according to one theory with the inscriptions that were found, you know, you know, a lot of controversy about the inscriptions at our site all the way down to South America are the old world markings, you know. But according to Barry Fell uh, from Harvard, he said that they came out of the Iberian Peninsula, uh, Spain and Portugal. If you look at the Iberian ibex, it looks like that. I, that's all I, I'll throw okay. out there for you. Yeah. But, <clears throat> but there's five closets, stone closets in the Oracle Chamber. You know, some people say the whole thing is a ivory soap factory. They stored, I mean, you can't get a barrel from the, the table into the Oracle Chamber. There's a big, big monolith there with a very narrow space. 
even if you were doing apple cider or apple jack or whatever you're making you know <clears throat> yeah it's just like how do you get it in there you it's just physically almost impossible and i i'm one of my friends uh she's big on this she was a rodeo uh rider in texas she had her own horses i said could you get a horse down by the table she goes i want to bring my horse down by the table it's uneven and it's also so narrow you can turn the horse around I said, right. how are they supposed to bring in their apples a cartload of apples in to crush them on the table when you can't get your horse and buggy anywhere near the table. <clears throat> there's a big ramp there. There's a standing stones there. The table's in the way. Mm-hmm. Or even if you're making uh, soap, you know, the ivory soap factory thing. So none right. of it makes sense from that point right. of view. To me, it looks ceremonial. It looks very ceremonial. Yeah. Um, by the way, I was going to mention, I, I did a show and Jeff Wilson uh, was on the yeah. first hour and I was on the second hour. And uh, so my, my my friend in West Virginia who does some shows, he said, hey, Jeff, why don't you stay on and talk to Dennis? You know, he's found some serpents, you know. And uh, so he, I was on, I was talking like we were, and then Jeff kind of joined back in. And turns out he had been to my site. And he was there years ago. It was before the serpents and everything. Um, and oh. we had a nice conversation. So, you know, uh, when you mentioned Jeff a few times, I'm like, yeah, we did a radio show together. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, cool. yeah. He, he mentioned uh, <laughs> we just had Jeffrey and Delcy in to talk about their summer solstice event that they have coming up. Oh, yeah. Friends of the Serpent yep. Mountain. Right. And you guys have a summer solstice event coming up at America's Stonehenge. <laughs> so we yeah. had them yeah. on to promote, which... By the way, uh, your episode is going to be premiering, uh, we think, the day after the summer solstice. So um, we'll kind of. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. uh, Which I think will be cool for us because, you know, a lot of this is talking about solar alignments. I think it's going to be great. Perfect. Yeah. Um, But Jeffrey, when he was here, mentioned uh, getting a chance to speak with you. So. That oh, yeah. Awesome. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a couple of years ago. That's wonderful. I, I would and love I was that. at the Sherpa Mine. I was hoping to meet him, but. <clears throat> yeah. It would oh, be that? great to get you guys together uh, to chat yeah. with. You know, one of our yeah. goals is to really connect dots. You know, we. Uh, right. I, I yeah. get these kind yeah. of sensations when I hear you talk about undulating serpent walls and Mike Luoma yeah. pops up in my mind. Jeffrey pops up in our mind. And so I really want to connect. Like a put the puzzle together. Like yeah, let's get all these guys and, together because yeah, you know we we yeah. rely on a, people a lot smarter than us. And, right. Uh, I can. <laughs> I would rather hear experts and people that have really done the research. And you know, I've dug into a lot of things myself, but we really want to present. People that are way smarter than us. Let's just say that. <laughs> we try to, we, we try to know connect enough. them with each other. Yeah. That's how we learn too. That's how we learn too. All yeah. the time, you know, all these years, that's how we learn. We just, I will say that. Yeah, we just um, try to pull on the, threads and keep the conversation going, <laughs> keep, you know, understanding yeah. more yeah. as we go. I mean, just listening to you both tonight, I've learned more and actually visiting some of them sites. It's really meaningful, you know, and you're picking, I'm picking up stuff tonight. Um, our visitors are saying, they're coming in, do you know about this site out there? You know, when I was a kid back in 1970 and that's how we started, you know, when I started guiding in 70, you yeah. know, uh, hearing about these things and it's like, and then I got to visit them, you know, and I have a visit, I still got some on my bucket list I've never been to, but the Serpent Mound was one of them. We finally made it yeah. and the other Ohio sites too. Um, but we did get a chance 40 years ago, 41 years ago. My dad and I actually went to Scotland. I traveled to Europe a few times, and I was at the beginning of my flying career, so we got the, a little cheaper rate. We went over there, and we got to go to Scotland. We actually uh, had uh, an evening with Dr. Alexander Tom, and some call him the father of vacuum astronomy, and we were his son, Dr. Archibald Tom. And they're the ones that began in the 30s, you know, looking at these sites and seeing that they were aligned with the sun and the moon, perhaps, you know, 
and the geometry of the sites and also the megalithic yards. So we get a chance to have a whole evening with them at their compound somewhere near Dunlop, Scotland, you know. So that was, I look back at that as I wish I could go back in time and I have so many more questions to ask them. Oh, you know? yeah. And they're both, they're both gone. I think Tom Alexander died three years later and his son died 10 years, 1995, his son died. But I think grandson's still carrying out some of the work. They were interested in what we were doing astronomically and they're interested in the geometry of our site too. But that picture right there, yeah, that's the watch house. Actually, that's the chamber next to the watch house. And you can see that white quartzite stone in the yeah. back of the chamber inside of it. Um, Hans also used to come up in the 1970s, you know, and he wrote a book about us in 1992. So consider him like the uh, father of the paranormal. I don't know if that's an actual, you know, what everybody thinks, but um, he came up many, many times. And when he wrote the book in 1992, Barbara Han actually did the forward. And uh, she talks about that stone and other people talked about that stone, wondering and giving little speculation and some ideas of what it was. But my friend from Texas was up in 2019, and she's the one I mentioned before. She's doing a tour in Scotland right now. She just flew over uh, last night, as a matter of fact. She's doing some stuff with Scott Walters. But <clears throat> she said with her Sunseeker on her app on her phone, I hadn't put it on my phone uh, at that time. And she went to the back of the chamber, and she had taken astronomy, astrophysics in college, and some other courses. And she had traveled already to Europe and South America and stuff. So she's very young, but she really all really into this, and she just had to come and see our site because she saw it on um, on History Channel. And she got it back there. She goes, I think on the uh, equinox sunrise, you're going to see around 9 o'clock, that stone should get illuminated by the sun. And all the trees were still in front of it, like a great serpent mound, right. which was trees. So we had a forestry project done over two winters, 19 and 20, 20 and 21. We had a licensed forester. He went to the University of New Hampshire. We hired him after interviewing a few people. And they thinned out all the, the entire hilltop, <clears throat> And they opened up all the astronomical alignments a little bit wider so you could actually watch the sun come down and actually set on the stone because all those were starting to uh, fill in after, what, since 1965, some of them were getting kind of tight with the trees growing in and everything. So we opened them all up, and this one here had never been opened. So we opened it to our neighbor's property. We couldn't go any further, but it did allow the sun to go in. And as you can see, in night, uh, 2020, spring equinox, we saw the stone illuminate. If you look carefully, you can see the shadow and light uh, actually frame the top of the stone. So in 1920, right. uh, yeah, that was a surprise to us. But 30 minutes later, it looks like it morphed into point. almost like a hand yeah. <laughs> pointing back at it. Right. <laughs> and that, for the folks that are just listening, we're looking at this chamber. And there's a, a lentil stone on the top. And the sun is shining right into this chamber. But right in the middle, there's this highly reflective stone that's absolutely there on purpose. There's a shadow that's coming over the top of it that creates this point. And it's just like, like you said, if you hadn't cleared off those the woods, you would never understand or never know like the clues leading how special this was. And kudos to you guys for clearing that to make this possible, this illumination possible. But it's obvious that this was done on purpose. I mean, th this is just like absolutely incredible. Um, and one thing really quickly, and we can talk about it a little bit more off air because we've talked about it a lot on our show is you were talking about earlier is using some stone to essentially uh, have these uh, carved edges that then cast shadows or create alignments where they uh, look like serrations. And that's something that we found at V-Bar V World Heritage, uh, V-Bar V Heritage Site in the Verde Valley in Arizona, where they oh, wow. were actually uh, 
there was a petroglyph of a serpent with seven bends and this stone cast a shadow and it was a summer solstice, winter solstice and equinox alignments on a petroglyph of a serpent in the Verde Valley of in Arizona. And they're using these techniques to carve these stones to be able to cast the shadow, very similar to what you were talking about earlier. So that kind of reminds me of this as well. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, we can chat a little bit more. I can kind of, uh, that V-Bar V heritage site, they really just discovered this a couple summers ago well, and haven't, the, that's really, you wow. can't find anything about it. Um, I've never heard of it. I've been out there. Yeah. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Um, wow. But real um, quick, I, I will just, say that, uh, uh -huh. oh, uh, what we did is, uh, that's what we saw in 2020, 2021, but, um, uh, in 20 and 22 also in 23, I got up. It's 7.30 in the morning on that particular, back on that picture there. But I got up and I was up there at 7.30 watching. And what it does at 7.30 is a shadow and light actually, it's shaped like the bottom of the stone. It actually shadows, It's which is this shape. 30 minutes later, it's that shape on top. Hmm. About 30 minutes later, it turns into a hand. It looks like with a finger pointing back at it. What we think that represents is a womb with an egg being fertilized by the sun's rays. Now, I've been to Newgrange wow. in Ireland, and that's winter solstice at 9 o'clock. The Newport Tower in Rhode Island has an egg shape over the arch, and on the winter solstice at 9 o'clock, that is illuminated. Is it something to do with the male, the sun rays, the fertilization? And this is in the spring, too, you know, so very symbolic. But I think we're looking at the womb next to the serpent's head. You know, and then the question, was that built at the same time, or did the ad the chamber with a womb later. Yeah. I don't know. Right. That's the head that goes around 2,550 feet. I think it's protecting the sacred area, about 15 acres, and it comes right back in front of itself. There's a you know hump, 90 degree twist with the thing. The boulder, by the way, is a lunar minor standstill moonrise, which is coming up in 2035. Uh, uh, Newark, Ohio has the uh, lunar alignments too, and I think uh, the Serpent Mount has some of them. Um, and uh, but it also is a cross-quarter day. You have your quarter days, the four seasons. A cross-quarter day, that one would be on um, February 1st. But today it's called Candlemas. It was called Impulse by the Celts. But Native Americans, even at Mesa Verde, when we were there a couple times, they had the cross-quarter days. Hmm. It's kind of the days in between the seasons, you know. Right. So that will be two different astronomical events, both solar and lunar. And we're going to be watching that in 2035 if I'm still around. Uh, we've never <laughs> yeah. been able to... <laughs> I hope we'll be around, but yes. we never saw it. Oh, you will be. Again. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to it. But we never saw it because the forest was in the way. We've never been able to see that. It was predicted, but we never saw it. Um, <clears throat> the lunar alignment, by the way, the lunar major alignments will be in 2024. Uh, uh, 2025, I think, will be the lunar alignments. And then 2034 will be the lunar minor. And so mm -hmm. I'll be watching that over that stone. And... Uh, Inside that, we found a, a bone. Uh, it was found uh, in a 1958-59 dig. They found a bone about maybe an inch and a half long. It had a drill hole in it, uh, probably a small bird or something. It was probably used as a pendant. And then mm -hmm. right near there, a stone, piece of, like a piece of slate. They should identify where the material came from. That's, that would be interesting, too, because of trade or whatever from different areas. But that had a triangular shape with a stem and a, a, a same drill hole through it. So why were these pendants inside that structure? I don't know. Mm, yeah. But they did find two other bones, and those were looked at at the Smithsonian back in 68, as I was talking before the show. And that Dr. <clears throat> Lucy St. Hoyt actually looked at those, and she says, I think these are bison bison or buffalo. 
She showed it to her colleague, who was more of a specialist in that area. He looked at him and said, yeah, they, they're, they're bison, bison. She goes, but they're from New Hampshire. She goes, yeah, well, if you go back in time, the woodland bison were all over the place, including New Hampshire. So what the heck are they doing in that chamber? I don't know. But we found three three bone samples in that structure there, you know. So that's a really interesting structure. And it's an illumination. Um, When you look at the alignments like the winter solstice, that's like like type one or something. You know, you watch a sunrise or sunset or moonrise or moonset, perhaps a star over a stone, you know, standing. But this is an illumination that might be like like a uh, like a class two kind of alignment where yep. the sunlight goes into something. So we mm-hmm. have two different types of alignments, and I think we have fifty seven alignments in total at our site. <laughs> wow, that's incredible! Unreal. <clears throat> yeah, it's East West Jam. You can see some of the orthostats holding up the roof slabs. This but you can find those same kind of stones though. in the stone walls. Yeah, yeah it runs east and west. Walls. And- <laughs> I mean, that's just. Beautiful. And is this a reconstruction a where no, uh, the uh, there was some damage? Power. Yeah, if you look at Goodwin's photographs, it was like that in earlier photographs taken back in 1920. The four of them, one of them was of a young man standing right inside that structure in 1920. So the structure, although it's been some damage, a little damage done to it, you know, wear and tear, that is basically exactly the way it was. Uh, the Beautiful. roof slabs and the wall slabs and everything. And um, that chamber sitting on bedrock. Like the uh, the whole site is sitting on bedrock, like the walls that surround the 110 acres, these walls are sitting on bedrock too. Yeah. That would indicate that there was very little soil when the site was built, perhaps, you know. It's right on the bedrock. And how mm-hmm. many, and you had a note that said it's similar to something you've seen in the galley graves in Western Europe. Uh, and, yeah. And I was trying to find a photo to try to compare uh, the Western graves. But, yeah, they're called galley. Yeah, the galley or gallery. They use both terms. And I've been to the ones in France. They're also in northwestern right. Ireland, which we get to Ireland, but we didn't get to that part. But they're also in Holland. They call them the Giants Bed. The, uh, uh, what's the name of that? Hudenbin, I think. Hudenbin. I had a friend that went over there because he, he's a book writer. He's done 12 books. We're in a lot of his books. It's kind of like a Da Vinci Code on this side of the Atlantic. He's mm. a lawyer in Boston, but he does these books. He was just up yesterday with a huge group. Um, and he was only about three years ago, four years ago, and, and I on Facebook Messenger, I'm sending him, I said, Dave, are you in Holland? Uh, he goes, yeah, I'm doing some research for my next book, you know? And I said, are you at one of those giants? He goes, yes. I said, what's the orientation of the giants? But he goes, it's true east and west. All of these galley graves, uh, either coincidentally or not, uh, that I mentioned, including this one, all run true east and west, 20 to 60 wow. feet length, and they were used as tombs over there. I mentioned some bone stuff, and this is the area that that before the show. Mm-hmm. That's where this you can see now. Goodwin, when he came, there's a little more soil and there's more vegetation, uh, but you can see the bare bare rock sticking up. And this is yeah. where those bones I mentioned earlier. They won't get yeah. into that too much, but yeah, that's where they came from. That plat, yeah. So gotcha. you can see how would you how would you bury uh, you know. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so it was. They were found in the little dirt that was there. You know. So I don't know. I That's don't know what's going on with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe next show we'll. <laughs> yeah. Have some yeah. Information yeah. On that. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and man, this has been incredible. I mean, Dennis, we we thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, as we as we say, our cup is about full on this one. I uh, yeah. I we we could we keep like you to, captive yeah. for hours and hours and hours. Like I could probably go for well, it. Thank you. And yeah. uh, you know, like I said, you're it's amazing your family history with this place that you guys are keeping it going. You've got the next generation, your grandson, uh, your grandchild 
filed recently. So hopefully you guys just keep this going off into, you know, I like that these places are in private hands. Some of these places I think need to be in private hands because, you know, like Serpent Mountain, unfortunately, it just seems like the research stops. The research is grinding. There's nothing being done in terms of, you know, kind of new yeah. information coming out so yeah. kudos to you and your family thank Dad, you absolutely. so much yeah. um, thank you if there's any last words or anything you want to promote or tell us about i know you guys have your event coming up so if you want to talk about that and where we can find you and if people want to reach out well i'd like to say first thank you so much for having me on it was a total uh, it flew by it was a, a pleasure <laughs> being on with both of your questions and all the information you had it was wonderful I did learn a lot of things this evening, especially after seeing some of the mounds firsthand. It's really, really amazing out there. People have to visit Ohio, too, and all these other sites. Um, but, yeah, our summer solstice will be on a Wednesday, the 21st. We're going to have a uh, – the lady that actually does a celebration is from Holland, and she knows all about the Giants' beds. She's from there originally. Wow, and wow. Um, she does this this three-hour ceremony. She's been doing it for 31 years at our site, and she does go back to Holland once in a while. And we're going to have a drumming circle, I think about 6.30 or 7, up to about 8, and then the sunset is roughly 8.24. So we'll be doing a celebration on that day, and then we'll have uh, some more drumming circles coming up during the year, and then we'll have the equinox. And the equinox is so cool. You showed the uh, the illumination in that chamber. Actually, there's a about an eight-foot slab that fell. That's where the sun rises. You can watch that. And you go down to the Oracle Chamber. There's another monolith down there. And you can watch the sunrise over there about maybe, uh, oh, around 7.30, I think. And then you run down to the watch house. So there's three uh, illuminations, or I should say three events that happen on the equinox. So the fall equinox will wow. be watching that again. So. Very and then cool. with the solstice. So, yeah, uh, StonehengeUSA.com um, is our website. We're on Facebook, Instagram. And uh, there's a phone number uh, on our website. You can call us or email us. But there's a cool thing. It's a uh, it's a uh, virtual. You can go on it, download it on your app, and it's a virtual tour of the site. Uh, it will talk to you. It has pictures and text. And as you're walking around the site, use it. You can actually use it as a tour guide. We give you a paper one, too. But if you can sit in your living room and a lazy boy, you can do a complete virtual tour from our website. Just download the app, America Stonehenge. You can do a complete tour, see everything and more that we saw tonight over the, uh, the whole hilltop. Right. And there's an 11-minute video presentation you can watch there, too. Very cool. Mm. Very awesome. cool. I love how forward thinking that is. To, yeah. You know, if you can't get to the place, we want to give you that experience. That's really, I've never heard of yeah, that before yeah. as far as like good for you guys crowdsourcing Amazing. on your own. That's we'd, we'd like fantastic. to share. We'd like to share. We want to share. You know, hey, if you yeah. can't get here, take a virtual tour. It's neat. It's great. <laughs> yeah. And they have a, you guys have a YouTube channel well as well, America's Stonehenge, where you can see that intro video that you guys Thank play you. in the museum yeah. that gives a great yeah. breakdown and kind of an orientation to the site. So uh, go subscribe to America Stonehenge. Oh, definitely YouTube check that out. Yeah. As well. uh, Dennis, that was incredible. Uh, you know, <laughs> it did fly by. We really, really had a great time talking to you. And uh, again, we're going to pop off and we're going to say our final goodbyes to the audience. Please stay right there. We're going to come back and, and give you a proper goodbye. Uh, any last words for our audience about well, America? Come on up and. <laughs> yeah, oh, we're still doing research. We're still discovering things. And, you know, if you ever have a chance, you're in the New England area, about 40 miles from Boston, come on up. And we're open every day of the year except for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and the occasional New England blizzard, you know. So we're there 363 days a year. We're open. 
And we'd love to have you come up. And again, if you can't see it, go onto the website, look at the virtual tour. You know, people live, you know, in Hawaii can watch it and maybe visit us someday, or, you know, if they can't, it's still a really nice way to tour the site. So, Absolutely. but thank you both. I really, we really enjoyed tonight. Thank you so much. Oh, awesome. our pleasure. Our pleasure. Hey, there you have it, everybody. Dennis Stone from America Stonehenge. Dennis, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. We will be right back to say <laughs> goodbye you. to you. Take care. Guys, guys. Oh my gosh. That was incredible. And hey, by the way, the strange road, I think we got to get. We got to get to. I think Salem. his address is like twenty one twenty one Strange Road Avenue or something <laughs> like. He lives at the nexus of Strange, yeah. and down the road, There's a lot going and down on. Down the road man. is Fravor. Yeah. So and hey, it, Strange Road field trip. We're heading to America's Stonehenge. The equinox might be a good time for that. I'll tell you for what. that. You know that would be good weather. Uh, anyways, be, let's not yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not. Don't we'll, get me we'll talk down. to Dennis, but yep. we got the wheels turning. Yeah. Uh, everybody at home, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. You guys are the best. Uh, again, you can follow us at the Strange Road on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. The Facebook group, Strange Road Hitchhikers, is rocking and rolling. Leave us a five star rating. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like on this video. Check us out. Check us out and share. If you guys like what we're doing, please share. Uh, get the word out about Stonehenge of Amer uh, America, Stonehenge, and Dennis, and all the things he has going on. Um, and I think that's about it for us. As we say, the and cup rap, is approaching yeah. <laughs> full. And, of course, as always, thank you to Stoner and Disbro for right. making everything look and sound great. You guys are the best. Mikey and Bub signing out. Peace. Later, everybody.